so lazy. All right, well, let's talk about the promised Neverland. This is probably when the podcast version will start officially. Uh, objective analysis for Promise Neverland Edition. Uh, I didn't upload an episode last week because I wanted to finish my reading for Promise Neverland. It took me longer than expected. It's pretty so, weird, like 300 plus chapters. No, it's only 170. Yeah, 180. 300 for some reason. Wow, I'm drunk. It wasn't that long, but I would say Promise Neverland has a lot of condensed reading, so it makes it longer than it has to be, and all the chapters are decent amount, decent size. So, yeah, none of that freaking 11, 9 chapter BS. Exactly. chapters, like... <laughs> exactly. So my, my thing about it is, like, compared to my other read-throughs, I kind of knew a lot of it from memory. I know, like, I knew Promise Neverland from memory, but I wanted to make sure I'm reading all the finite details. So it took me a little bit longer. But it's, we're it's back. It's a plot-heavy story, too, with a lot of, like... It's more of, like, an intellectual series, I guess, because there's lots of little stuff. They can be, like, missed. It's not like... You know, I'm not trying to, like, hate on any of the more battle shonens, but, you know, there, there's things that you can kind of skim over in a battle shonen and not really miss it. Oh, yeah, I actually agree to that, um, which makes Promise Neverland one of their favorable series in terms of innate dynamics, which is also one of the reasons why I think it flocks in certain areas. So we'll talk about that. Um, but Promise Neverland objective analysis, of course, we'll be talking about the plot, the characters, the setting, the theme and the art or animation, but I read the manga, so I'm only talking about the art. And for setting, obviously, there's really no power system, so we're not going to talk about a power system. Um, guns. <laughs> I mean, guns are power, for real. Uh, but, uh, Quan, since I know you're a big Promise Neverland fan, you said some blasphemous remarks like, it's better than Attack on Titan, you know. So, uh, I'll let you choose... Uh, which which area do you want to touch upon? I mean, I guess it would make the most sense, I feel like, to go like, oh, wait, are we going, like, it's the same parameters as last time, right? Yeah. We yeah, talk was... about C characters first. I know you had gripes about Emma in your previous read-through, so I'm curious to know, like, just characters that can touch on her and some other things. Because so there's some characters that I have issues with, too, and all that, so. I'm curious um, about that, honestly. Yeah, characters. Let's start with characters. Obviously, there's the subcategories of the protagonist, the main antagonist, which will be very interesting to discuss with you. Oh, yes. The villains in general, which also will be very interesting to discuss. <laughs> the main side characters, which is Ray and Norman, for the purposes of this. And then the side characters in general, which is everybody else. Um, so, a lot, since you mentioned Emma, let's talk about her, the protagonist of the story. Now, I will say this. First, let me ask you this. Or, I'm going to say a claim and let me know if you agree. I 100% think Emma is a power of friendship. Yes, I can give you that, yeah. Okay, just want to make sure we're on the same page. It is a shonen, you know, at the end of the day. So, I mean, it will have elements of that at certain points. No, I mean, like, she's straight up. Because the thing about Emma for me, so, like, the... When it comes down to um, when I'm like dissecting like characters, I look at development, how well they fit their themes, their entertainment value, and their impact on the story. Now, I think in terms of Emma's impact and how she fits her theme, she legit is like the story. In hundred percent, in every way possible, she is the story because she is the only reason why everything pushes forward. Like a hundred percent. Like sure, Ray and Norman 
are extremely intelligent. Like, Emma wouldn't succeed without them, but in terms of, like, how everything worked out, purely because of Emma and her nature. And that nature is that power friendship type idealism that I personally don't like, which is, but for a story like this, I, you could argue it fits, but that's something we can discuss. But in terms of Emma's character, she's, her positivity is one of the biggest things, and her, in a, or wanting for, like, her family to always live, and then her, that expands to all life to always live relatively i'm not saying she doesn't kill people um demons she doesn't kill people she kills demons totally kills demons yeah but when it comes down to it she she definitely will go that far for objectively bad and antagonistic demons but she definitely reached a point where she wanted like all life to live all life to be to be equal like they were all in the circle of life bro it was dope um yeah, for for the most part, I I think she fits that theme, which is why I think she fits that theme very well. Her impact is the story, like she is the impact. Entertainment's pretty subjective. I think she's pretty much the same throughout the story. Uh, if you really like that character, who's always positive and always very stubborn, then go for it. Um, but I don't think she she matured, but I don't think she really changed as a character. I don't think her development drastically changed in any sort of way. I think her character is pretty much who she was since the beginning, but perspective grew her ideals. I think that's basically all that really happened. Uh, I think you may be able to argue me seven, but for me, I gave her a six. I don't, I don't find her any. I don't find her character to be that endearing. But in terms of uh, her impact, the story, I think that could be carried enough to a seven for me. But I'll let you let you talk about Emma. See, the thing I like about Emma is she's one of those characters because there's, like, your static characters and then there's your, like, dynamic characters. I'm mostly talking about main characters in this instance, but they're, like, the dynamic characters are the ones that, like, grow and become different and have lots of development. They change throughout the series because they're very dynamic. Like, I think one of the other characters like that would be, like, Naruto. I think Naruto from, you know, the beginning of Naruto changes a lot to the end of Shippuden. He's very different. Um, but then you have some characters that are more static. They kind of are the exact same. And but because of how they are, they change the world around. They are the ones that change a lot about everything else. Which, not saying that a dynamic character can't change everything else, but just a static character really doesn't change. And it's really all them changing everything else, which is like what Emma is, in uh, my opinion. I do, because in the beginning, she does mostly stay the exact same in terms of like she's really stubborn. Um, she always has very nonsensical plans, but I think, like, the main takeaway from her theme is that, like, when, if there's a will, there's a way, because, like, no matter what, she always wants the best case scenario, the best case outcome, and they more than likely typically think of a way after, you know, lots of trial and error. And 95% of the time, it always works out. Yeah, and the thing I like about it more than just, like, your stereotypical, like, oh, my friends need me so I'm randomly stronger, or my friends need me and this thing randomly happens, is in Promised Neverland, even though her family and friends need her, it's not like a lot of random scenarios just pop into play. It's usually the result of like some type of plan or something happened or they thought of an entire idea that still had to be executed. Typically, there is like a level of execution that had to happen. So like it, it doesn't bother me as much. As say like not to hit on fairy tale, I do enjoy 
But it's saying fairy tale when they're faced with, with an obstacle, main character just gets stronger and then he beats it up. You know, there, there's a level of execution to it that I can appreciate more in Hot Neverland. Um, Emma, she's not like my favorite main character ever, but as far as main characters, I think she's very entertaining for me. I wouldn't give her higher than a seven personally, but if somebody liked her that much more, I could see it. Like if somebody would give her an eight or a nine, I could totally understand where they would be coming from if that's their kind of character. Yeah, there's there, there's a certain value in terms of like different character tropes that you can argue for sure. Like uh, Emma is one of those tropes, very similar to Natsu, that's very likable. I think Emma's one, of, obviously, a very likable character for 100 percent because of her personality and her unwillingness to not give up on people. Now, one thing I will say for Emma's character though that um, that makes it kind of that pushes a lot of it back for me is even if she wants to stay static. One thing that I was really hoping, and maybe you could argue, like, the, um, what, what is their names? Um, Hugo and, what's his name? The other one. Al, uh, no, it's not Oliver. It's, damn, I forgot the other one's name. But Hugo and his friend, um, and their death. But even in that situation, like, it never at any point, even though Emma's impacted by a lot of things because that's her nature, never at a point ever felt like things were going wrong for Emma. It always felt that things were going right for Emma. And usually for that, in terms of like something like fairy tale, like if you did what Thomas Neverland did in fairy tale, like Emma would be like a nine. But the the reason why it kind of is off putting in Promise Neverland for me purely because the story sets itself up as a thriller series where everything can go wrong all the time. And that kind of apocalyptic setting, kind of like The Walking Dead, for example, it would be very weird if, like, constantly a uh, character is always looking for the idealistic situation in an apocalyptic world and everything they want worked out for them. So that, that pushback for Emma that could have propelled her into an even greater character never truly happened. Because even though I think the execution of all the surrounding pieces are always there, that's also attributed to the fact that Ray's a genius, Norman's a genius, and the rest of her family are also very capable and able to handle things. If the surrounding characters were, like, like normal intelligence, none of Emma's plans would have worked out. So, <laughs> so that <laughs> like that, that is a fact. Like Emma heavily benefited from not even not even just Ray and Norman. Everybody she met is extremely capable. Like beyond capable. See, that's one of the reasons why it's like for she her character. Like if she was put in fairy tale and replaced with Natsu, I think she would have been a hundred percent a better character than Natsu. Like a hundred percent. But because of she's been in this series, I think she just, her character, like, is so off-putting for how the series actually is. Like, she's too much of, like, a bright spot for for this series. And I think that's kind of what it held. It, it, it's kind of, the dichotomy was kind of off-putting for me when I was reading the series. I, I think, like, because I, it almost feels like, especially in the beginning, when you really establish, like, the like the darker parts of the series was you go okay kids are being grown or not grown but raised to be eaten and all of that so like it, it really sets it up 
to be really, really dark. And then the only real soul light spot you have in the story is Emma. But it's funny because I feel like the tone was set in the beginning when Norman got quote-unquote eaten or got sent away. But them bringing back Norman was good and bad at the same time because it took away a lot of what her failure was, essentially. Because that would have been a big moment. I mean, it was a big moment to her in that moment. But as us as the reader and, and in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't because he also was still alive. So I think, like, when you look at, like, more of the darker moments, you would have to look more at, uh, what's his name? At, like, Lucas and, uh... Hugo. Lucas and Hugo. That's Lucas what the name is. Yeah, because those two dying was was really big. But it, it's one of those things where they their deaths didn't feel like a necessarily a failure of Emma, but just felt like more of a bad scenario that happened. So it's like, that while their deaths did impact Emma and the main group, it wasn't really caused by her or anything so it really couldn't i don't know it, it felt like it felt like their death couldn't be a big character moment for her or as big as a character moment for her as like they could have been yeah what's very interesting about it it's kind of like they're okay with killing hugo and lucas because they're already adults it's definitely what it felt like for me um so it's like they're okay to get rid of them as characters and also there were two kids who also died and it seemed like emma did not care like, there's, I forgot that scene happened. There's kid, two kids who got shot in the face. They died. And Emma did not care. Or somewhere else. It, it, yeah, it happened when the, uh, the Minerva, the Rock Free organization found, it's when the Hugo and Lucas died. Like, before, like, when everything started beginning, there was a scene where they were about to climb up the ladder and well, uh, one of the characters got shot. She did care about that character, and they had to bring him to safety. And, but there are two characters who got shot in the face and died, and nobody cared. I mean, to be fair, in that exact moment, while she was trying to evacuate everyone, it's not like a lot. She... Yeah, but like she really cared about the kids that got injured, and Hugo and Lucas's deaths when nobody cared about the two who just died. <laughs> it's like, they do not have any value. And... Um, also something that was very off-putting that I'm going to mention now and then we'll talk about more later. Adam was always there, but he was never there. Adam, was that the one that was, like, weird? The Norman clone. The big yeah. Norman clone. Yeah. He was always there, but never there. Yeah. It was, it was very strange. It was almost uh, like he, like, I don't want to say he was, like, plot, but, like, he was. He kinda, was. He yeah. wasn't, he wasn't, though. He wasn't, he he had no relevance other and then his two biggest moments is he helped fight off Duke Lewis and he helped cure Norman. Yes. Big moments. It was everybody because he had that, that, that like special gene because there were so many failed clones. There was a bunch of them. So it only makes sense that one of them would happen to be that anomaly that doesn't have this horrible side. Well, the character, like, it seemed like he was never in a bad situation, because he was never, it looked like he was never there, but then he was there when everything was right. I mean, because to be fair, mentally, he's not all the way there, so it's not... No, I'm talking about his presence. Like, I completely forgot Adam existed until they got in safety. Then his character showed up again. I mean, probably because, like, there's not really... Like, I want to say he'd be around for, like, random conversations, but he doesn't, like... You can't articulate, so it's like, what, what scene... You only have so many panels to, like, you know... To I'll go deeper it. into it. I'll go deeper into it when we talk about plot. But, um... Let's talk about the Ray Norman, in terms of the main side characters. 
I love Ray. I think Ray is a fantastic kid. And I think Norman. I think Norman is arguably really good. To, I the thing about Norman is that is off putting. Is a lot of things kind of just go right for Norman. Whereas Ray, I feel like everything he did was very natural throughout the entire story. Cause he felt realistic, even though he had like uh, he was a genius just like Norman. And um, obviously, he knew everything. He everything he did was very methodical. It was for him to survive. He hated his life and his existence, so he wanted Emma and Norman to survive. He came up with a whole entire plan. He was willing to sacrifice other kids and all that stuff. And obviously, Emma turned him around and made him appreciate his own life. So he turned his life around and wanted to protect Emma and the rest of his family. So all his plans went straight to protecting them. He was always realistic. He was always thinking ahead. He wasn't idealistic as Emma, but Emma's input obviously affected his plans and made sure that they went the best way that uh, that's best for everybody involved. I think Ray was a very great character. I do think later on his value started diminishing. That's, for sure. That's my biggest problem with him right there. Is the author just like... Ray became so like not as important the more the story went on. It was like he like yeah. peaked in Goldie Pond, and then after that, it was just like a steady decline of him even being involved, being around. It was like, bro, can we get some more Ray? He's a really great character. Yeah, it was like a lot of the things, like he was, every time Emma was thinking of something, Ray solved it. Like he was always there to make sure that everything didn't go freaking derailed. Yeah. Um, but his character definitely, it, it was so, the moment Norman showed up, I think that was a big op- that was a big thing that kind of changed things because Norman is a genius as well, but Norman's genius went directly to a different direction, and then Ray Ray's genius couldn't really shine because it was like Norman's genius, Emma's idealism, and then Ray's there. Well, it's one of the ones where um, I, I like how the author put it in one of like the side things, which is trying to explain how like all three of them are geniuses, but she put it. Um, I think it's she, but they were saying that. Norman is smart because he just knows the answer. Ray's smart because he can just remember the answer because of his, you know, like, in, insane memory. That's really why he was a genius. And then Emma's smart because she can basically figure out the answer, which kind of goes, like, it ties back to kind of how their characters just operate. So, like, it was almost, it's like Ray. I did not get that feeling when I was reading, honestly. I, mean, I, I get what they're trying to say, but I don't think they executed it like that. What do you mean Norman just know Norman just be No Norman knows the answer, but I think Ray a lot of the time also knows the answer. I think his memory is also there. And then Emma, I do agree she figures it out, but I think a lot of her thing is also very instinctual. So I mean I guess, but I don't think it really panned out like that as much as she was saying it. It made sense to me. I think it went exactly how she was saying it. Because that's kinda how they always approach their scenarios. I will say with Ray though, it, his his whole memory thing is more off of, like, his statements of being able to remember everything, and he never forgets anything ever, but... Yeah, because a lot of him, a lot of his knowledge is also applied, but he could... After he, like, read all those books, he wasn't really reading a lot afterwards. He was just put, putting things together. Like, he... When Norman had a plan, Ray knew exactly what Norman was thinking, and vice versa. Now, Norman was smarter than Ray, sure, but Ray was, like, right like, right there at the end of the day. Like, I feel like Ray, Ray had more of a natural shrewdness to him that allowed him to, like, 
think and react in certain ways that, say, Emma would never think to do and, re- and would catch Norman off guard. Because I think it was, yeah, 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 I, I want to say Norman actually never beat Ray in chess, which, like, story-wise, you know, who even cares? Like, but in, in terms of matching intelligence, it shows that, that Ray has a more strategic mind than Norman does. Not to discredit Norman's smartness, but to just say Ray, his way of thinking can outclass both of theirs in certain scenarios. I think another way, I think another way to put it as well is like Norman's vast intelligence, and I, I think also can be like looked at the lens that he knows he's smarter than everybody else. Like he knows this, whereas Ray doesn't actually have that type of like narcissistic thinking. I don't think Ray ever thinks he's like better than anybody. He just no, he just like very calculated in every situation. So I think that's another big factor too. Yeah, because like whenever he wants to sacrifice kids for the sake of whatever his plan is or anything, it's not that he's doing it out of, like, I'm better than everyone else, so they should die for me. It's like, well, realistically, we can't sustain all these people. So the, the best course of action is to, you know, let so-and-so die and leave so-and-so. Uh, be- yeah, he was also willing to kill himself, too, in that, in that one scene, and then Emma convinced him out of it. Um so with that say, I think Ray was a fantastic character. He definitely dwindled a little bit at the end, which is unfortunate. Um, but he he was a great story and the perfect person to put us on uh, side Emma, uh, considering how she was. Um, and then Norman was very interesting as well because he was a great character in the beginning. He was gone for a while, and then he shows back up. Now. I like Norman and his his way of as his way of thinking is very understandable, for sure. But one thing I definitely think that was very off putting with Norman is like we know he's like a super super genius, but you just assume the it seemed like the author assumed he's such a genius to the point that you don't elaborate on anything he does, which is. I think was just very problematic for Norman. Like, you told us what he did, but you never showed us in terms of the story. Like, he kind of just met some guy and destroyed the facility and saved a bunch of people. Never really showed it throughout the story. Yeah, never showed us the progress of it. And then he kind of just found these pe- found his demon tribe, convinced them to become uh, allies, and convinced them to uh, fight against the queen. Like, there are so many intricate parts of his plan that you just have to assume he's really smart and it just worked out instead of showing us in the story on how he became this mastermind boss level character i mean like to be fair you'd have to give him a lot more charisma than he naturally has i guess if she was if they were going to show it but you have to because that's that's who he became that would have added like so much more to the story like that would add it like like, <laughs> which, which is you need in a final arc, and that's one of my that's one of my big criticisms for the final arc is that they rushed past a lot of the stuff that needed that that relatively needed to be dove into. Like you can, I mean, people take shortcuts, but I feel like the Promise Neverland mangaka took a lot of shortcuts in the final arc. At least for Norman, for sure, I can definitely agree with it. But it, it would have been like an entirely another arc or something. I do. To really get, because Norman went through a lot, such as escaping. Yeah, I agree. Even a whole another plan, and we'd have been away from the main character for a really long time. But Norman's also a main character, so it's like you know what I mean. Like people don't like being like I'm not one of these people. I know a lot of 
readers, they get upset when they're not around the main character for a very extended amount of time. I mean, I agree, but Norman's also the second most popular character in Promised Neverland, so it's like... It's true. I think... We can even, we can even look at current series. Bakugo is the most uh, popular character in, in My Hero, yet My Hero mostly focuses on Deku throughout the entire thing. Noelle is the most popular character in Black Clover, yet it's super heavy Asta folks. I mean, so it's one of those... But like, those are problems, though. People actually don't like that. The fact that we just keep on focusing on Asta and never dove into other characters. There's some of my hero where you have so many characters that deserve shine, but they don't get that shine. It's actually a problem. It's like an Eastern versus Western manga thing, though. So it's like... For most Westerners, because I'm in the same camp that you just explained, I, I, I just like it a lot. But a lot of popularity polls... Are, or these popular polls are off the Japanese. But I would also think of it like this, right? Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood had a good amount of time of Edward not being prevalent. Remember around the final arc? Like, Edward wasn't there it, for a lot of it. it. It works out, in my opinion, for Full Metal because of how long it is in its entirety. Where, like, it isn't super long. So even when Edward isn't there, in the, in, in the grand scheme of the story, he wasn't around for a little bit. But, like, it wasn't an actual long time for the audience. I mean, maybe we might feel better about it in a binge, but, like... I also will say this, though. I think they could have done it in, in spurts, because there, there were scenes here and there where we showed Norman was alive. We actually showed that Norman was alive very early on, if you remember. Yes, yes. Like, yeah, so they could have shown scenes of him gradually taking over, becoming this guy, because we knew he was alive. It was, like, right after Goldie Bond when they first showed him, isn't it? Yeah, like, it really didn't feel long since we... I guess maybe weekly would have felt long, but it didn't feel that long from Norman. So, I... Yeah, they could have done more it with... Like, it, was, it was, like, two arcs. Two, two. It was, like, an arc, and I... And it was not, not even a whole arc, really, because, like, he, he disappeared at the end of that first arc, and then you had them getting to that shelter or whatever. And then Goldie Pond happens, and at the end of that, you see him. So it's, like, really, like, one arc without him. I wonder if people, like, were going crazy when Norman appeared again. I know when I read it, because I didn't read it weekly, I was binged it all at once, but when I seen he was back, I was hyped. I was like, oh my god, Norman's back. It's crazy. But I never thought yeah. he was dead, though. I didn't think he was dead. Yeah, because they never showed him dead. So I think they kind of, like... <laughs> it's one of those things where it's, like... You, if you read manga, you kind of know when someone is dead or not. It's like one of those situations. His his whole quote unquote death was just a little sus. It was like, well, they never showed him dying, so yeah, it was very strange. Um, but with that said, I gave Norman Ray collectively like a nine. I think they had so much potential to be like ten. You could argue be eight, but like if the manga could just dove into story more throughout. Like, Emma got the full everything, but if they did more for Norman and Ray, then I think they would have been, like, like at, like, 10-level characters. Yeah, they had a lot of potential. Honestly, if Ray was just in the story towards the end more, then he would have been that 10 character. And I do agree with you, if, if Ray, if Norman would have got, like, an actual more of an explanation on everything, instead of just, like, Raise the genius so it's going to work out. Because that was pretty much the explanation. <laughs> so, of course he did this. If we were able to make it this far, then Norman alone could make it way farther. That was kind of the entire explanation there. Yeah, it was kind of off-putting, but it definitely showed... Like, I, I 
Matter of fact, when I used to do like the anime YouTube videos, I made a Ray video exclusively. Ray's hundreds of my favorite character, probably someone. Really, really. For sure. I like Norman too, but like Ray definitely stood out because he seemed way more realistic than like every character, like everything he was doing. Like I understood what he was doing, whether or not I agreed with it, it was a different story. But like his situation, that was tough. He was making a lot of smart decisions. If he didn't do what he did, Emma and Norman would have died. Like hundreds. I mean, to be fair, Norman's pretty realistic too. The only, I think, the only character that's unrealistic, aside from like the little little kids, is Emma, because Emma's the only one that's like, I want everybody to escape and no one to die and nothing bad to happen. Where everybody else is like, well, no, there are necessary sacrifices that have to be made. Yeah, I think the only thing with Norman is like the fact that he was gone for so long and never elaborated on everything he did. I think that's the only problem with Norman. Um. Okay, so nine. Let's go into the main antagonist. Now, I'm being completely honest, I even know who the main antagonist was. Well, the problem with Promise Neverland is they really have no main antagonist for 90% of the story. Like, it's really hard to say. I think that's good for them. Like, for how their story worked out. Because it's more like, cause it's more like Emma is fighting against the, like, the, the way that the world they live in is. So it's more of like a, you know, when they're talking about like, oh, man versus man, man versus nature, man versus idea, whatever, like that whole, like, story prompt thing. It's really a man versus nature, or in this case, girl versus nature story, where, like, Emma is trying to fight against the way that the world that she lives in is, not necessarily against one singular entity, like in most shows. The only reason why I think that that isn't good enough, because if they would have dove into that a little bit more, then it would have worked better. But there are aspects of the main antagonist that were delved into, and even the world, but it just wasn't elaborated on. Like, for example, like, the Peter Ratchley, Julius, and what he did, they touch upon that backstory in, like, one chapter. They could have 100% dove into that way better, which led into Peter Ratchley and William Minerva. They dove into Peter Ratchley's story in, like, three pages. Like, they did not care at all about Peter Hatchery or even the backstory of how all this began. Like, if they would have delved into that more, it would have been way more impactful. Even the Queen. Like, we finally meet her around the final arc, and we know very minimal about her, and, like, her personality would be perfect foil for Emma. Like... Her personality is purely that, that nature aspect. She wanted to feed. She wanted to eat. She wanted to be the top dog. She wanted to be the top of the food chain. She didn't even care about her father. She killed her father. Like, they could have dove into her personality way more or introduced her way earlier and showed how her nature really corrupted society. Because, like... The demon society was extremely corrupted. Right. The royals were extremely corrupt. If they would have dove into her or Peter Rattray and the Rattray family decision more, then that would have done... Even if they dove into the backstory more and the nature of how everything began, it would have been way better. But it, when, it, when eventually Emma... Well, Emma was barely there when they fought the queen, but eventually when they uh, confronted the queen and confronted Peter, it was... It, felt very short-lived like nothing felt challenged and she was not even peter was easily kind of she saved okay she saved peter right 
Right. And she convinced Peter that he was wrong, then he killed himself, then she tried to save him again. So it was like, nothing about her ideals was challenged by the world or by the antagonist. So, I think there was stuff that was there, but they... He's getting pushback the entire way. If not like Peter Rattray himself had to say, Emma, your way of thinking is wrong and this will never work, because he wasn't really that kind of guy. Like... Well, no, he was. So the, the thing about Peter Rattray is that's why he killed William. Because the fact that William found out the truth about what Julius did, Julius betrayed his friends and decided to give up the and make up promise of the demons and all that stuff and and made a promise with the god level being and then peter found out too william found out was like oh this is horrible this is a horrible society peter found out was like oh we are heroes that's how the world is supposed to be he was even more happy because of the the because of his difference of thinking with william he killed william and killed all his comrades so his philosophy completely was against Emma, but when they met, like, there was, like, nothing there. Like, there was no challenge. It's like, oh, maybe I am a bad guy, and then he died. Tried to kill himself, and then Emma said Because he's not, like, a tough guy on his own. Like, I don't think, I don't necessarily think Peter has, like, strong self-convictions. I don't think he's, like, a mentally strong... Strong? He killed his brother and all his comrades. I think that's pretty salt strong self convention Kill your brother? He probably, like, snuck him. He loved his brother. He did, but he did. All right, and I'll give him that. But I, I just don't see him as like this, like unshakable conviction kind of guy. Like he, he doesn't have to have like all that charisma, but I think he. So he kind of acted like. A, I agree, but I think his story could have been like elaborated more, which gave us more insight on him. And when he faced Emma, that would have been. It would have made everything kind of come full circle on how his ideology corrupted the Rattery family versus how Emma wants to change it. All we really needed was that he betrayed his brother to really, really make them be uh, stuck where they were. I mean, if if any major antagonist I think needed more, I would agree with you for the uh, Queen. Just because the, the whole aristocracy with the, the whole demons and how that was set up was very interesting. But, like, the Peter stuff, I feel like he served the purpose he needed to serve. What I would say is, I think, I 100% think the Queen should have been the bigger antagonist, but Peter was the final antagonist, so that's why it was hard to figure out who's actually the main antagonist in this situation. I don't even know, because both of their stories didn't feel like it came uh, full circle. Now, the, the one thing I will say about your point is at the very least, there was a confrontation between Peter and Emma, and then we got the short Peter backstory of Peter. Whereas Queen, like, it just, there was really none of that confrontation. Like, there was nothing really there. Even her her meeting Sanju again never really got elaborated. I mean, right? her, her, like, Emma, I feel, like if, I feel like Emma wouldn't have even had a place. Like, if, if, if the author somehow put Emma there, I don't even think Emma would have a place in, in that entire fight. Or, or even in, say, if they had, like, some type of idealistic clash. I, I don't even think she would have had a place. <laughs> no, I'm not even saying she needed to be in the fight. I'm saying the queen needed more story as a main antagonist. More screen time, yeah. I can see that. More elaboration on her antagonistic tendencies. More emphasis on her being such a, a glutton and greed. Like, she is everything that's wrong with Demon Society. 
mean, but to be for Promise Neverland's very short length, being like not even 200 chapters, apparently, they could have easily added another 50 to, to 80 chapters to fully flesh out a lot more things. I can't give her. I can't give her uh, slack for that. I, it has to be a criticism. That's how she wrote her story. But it being it being able to at least portray a lot of these things in a short amount of time is good, though. Instead of dragging it on. But it doesn't make it. No, it doesn't make it good. It makes you it's respectable, but it doesn't make it good. Like I respect it. Like you, it to to you. You at the very least made it a story. So, but it doesn't make the. Queen, I don't think is a good an- main antagonist. I don't think Peter's a good main I don't antagonist think at all. The main antagonist, though, that's the thing. I don't think this is one of those stories where, oh, the main antagonist is this one singular person. The main antagonist is the way the world is. It is Emma versus the world that she lives in, not Emma versus Peter or Emma versus Queen or Emma versus Demons. It's literally, the world, the way society, the world she was born in, is the antagonist. Uh, that's such an easy answer. You can literally argue that for every protagonist in every good series. Necessarily, no. I disagree. You literally, that's such an easy answer. The, the, the problem, the reason why is because when it comes to the system of the demon world, it was created by someone, by a system. And that system was uh, aligned to Peter and the Queen. That is a system that is put in place, and that system was corrupted by Peter and the Queen, even more so than it was in the past. Right, so it all really delved into Peter and the Queen, and even when the Queen was gone, Peter tried to take control of the entire society. He was the embodiment of what is wrong with the world, Peter and the Queen. But Emma had beef with with, with byproducts of the environment, not necessarily with those two in uh, those two in individuals. I will say there are stories where the environment is also an antagonist. Typically, there is a person that the main character does have beef with that supersedes all of that. But in this story, I don't think that that's the, the case. Because think like Black Clover, Black Clover, for example. Could you say right. that, that, that the environment Oxford is in is an antagonist to him? Sure, you could say that the way that the Magic Knight Society is, value magic over people with not that much magic, is an antagonist. But it wouldn't be nowhere near the main antagonist because there are individual characters that are direct antagonists to us at multiple points of the series. And you could say that for a lot of other series, too. Like, like You can say that for Pete. Peter was all, like constantly on um, trying to find Emma, and so were the demons and the queen, because the queen wanted to eat Emma, Norman, and Ray. Yes, she did. She never, so she was constantly like you couldn't delve into the story of her wanting because she wasn't even supposed to eat them. That was for the god, but her greed wanted her wanted to change everything. A lot of what happened is also because of Peter wanting to keep the secret that he fucked up, and the queen wanted to eat eat them even though she wasn't supposed to. I, I think the, the I think the, the author's choice of keeping the contact of Emma and those two parties very, very minimal worked out, in my opinion. I liked it a lot that we didn't have, because the, every story, you, you can grab almost anyone, and then you can find this one sole person versus this one sole person, either a battle or a clash of ideals. But I feel like it's much harder to make a story where it's really there. Granted, there are people antagonists or demon antagonists, whatever, but the main focus really is this character is just trying to overcome the world and the circumstances they were lived in is, is the main focus. But you can't overcome the world without overcoming the, the people who put that system in place. And you're not going to overcome God, because God fucking... We'll talk about that, because that thing... I, we'll talk about that thing. Because... Oh, I have problems with that thing. 
But that thing is just uh, a, uh, just in place. But the ones that corrupted the system in first in the first place was Julius and the Ratchery family and the demons that made a deal with him. And that all ultimately delved into Peter and the Queen. It's not like society was like this from the very beginning. No, society's like this from two parties specifically. And those two parties were in power, and those two parties want to keep the system how it is now. So, if like you would. It would make more sense if there wasn't a, like, like actual causes to why the world is like this, but there is. And that is the queen and her family and Peter and his family. So that's, that's why I think, I'm going to say it, I don't know, I don't know if you're going to try to push back on me, but I think it would work better in that situation, maybe in, like, something like Attack on Titan, but... Because the one who caused everything was Carl, King Carl Fritz, kind of. I, 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 see, and I, I was gonna say, Attack on Titan would be another one that that, that I would agree is a man versus like the world or a world I, kind of thing. Aaron doesn't have a direct main antagonist that this one. Especially considering how he saved the main antagonist, so it's like. I mean, Aaron's still like protagonist. Sorry. Yeah, I think that would. Bit better and kind of similar to like Code Geass too. Right, or, even though I haven't seen it, but yeah, it sounds like Lucian was just trying to, you know, he, he was more or less against everybody. Yeah, the only reason why in those two situations is like there wasn't a cause on why the world was the way it was. The world was way the way it was because the world was the way it was. In the Promised Neverland, that wasn't the case. There was a cause for it. Those causes did exist. Once you get rid of those. But you have to get rid of those two causes. That was why the that was who the the the, the old guy uh, um King Carl Fritz. Yeah, there wasn't. Uh, no, I did say maybe him, but he has nothing. He doesn't lead to anything. He doesn't lead to any bigger antagonist. Yes, he does. He's the reason why people hate. No, I mean like there's Aaron can't go back in time and challenge him, right? There's no there's not no characters in this current because like. King Carl Fritz's descendants did not stay antagonists. They repented and wanted to be victims. So there's nothing to Aaron to challenge. He, he Aaron challenged them, but the, the opposing side also hated Carl Fritz in there. So he, those, guys, those guys that are not part of like Paradise Island, they have nothing to do with Carl Fritz. But they're also problematic for Aaron. Whereas Emma, she, had a, she has to get rid of Queen, Peter Rattery, and then make a deal with God, and then everything's solved. If anything, she has a lot of conflict. She has a man versus man, a man versus society, and against the supernatural. Like, she has a lot going on. Well, okay, we'll talk about God in a second, but I agree she had a lot going on, but if they, if those closing forces just made more of a presence and elaborate this story, even like the backstory of Peter and William, if that was. Because we, William was so important, and we got literally almost nothing about William. So if that story was dove into a little bit more. We need to see how he grew up, and, and his likes and dislikes, and what he was like, and him and Peter. Like, we don't need a full, deep dive into his character, in my opinion. We, don't, we didn't need all that, because it wasn't important to Emma and the story. Yes, William was super important how the story turned out. Yes, he himself, and, and him trying to help kids escape. And his death? Because, like, okay, listen to William was super important, and we found out why he turned. But we don't find out like how he made the books, 
how he how he uh, found a group of people to side with him, how they created the 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 bunker and everything. And I'm not even see every little detail needs to be explained, but we knew he did a lot. Teacher Peter found out William was a was a betraying him, decided to kill William, found every one of his people, found um, also that one Goldie Pond area. Like Peter did so much to ruin all of William's plans that all was touched upon but never elaborated on. Again, yeah, so, but I don't think it needed to be fully explained on why or how. I don't know. It just would have made Peter a much more significant figure if it was. But I, I don't think he was supposed to be a super deep, fleshed-out character. I think he was supposed to be this, like, like disagree in the story that, that that like helped. I don't think you can't because because of the fact that Arthur did not make him a fully fleshed out character. He was intended to just be this like this. this, this he's this character that just helps them from the shadows and or had helped them from the shadows, but he doesn't actually have a place in the story because he's dead. I di- I I disagree. The only reason why is because there is enough plot that we know. That just needed to be elaborated. If there was nothing that Peter did or nothing William did, then sure. But we know they they did a lot. That was in direct opposition to Emma. And same with the Queen. So we know they did a lot. We know that their ideals perfectly contradict Emma's. So we know everything about their their presence has elements to make a better character, be a better antagonist. It just wasn't delved into. So that's why... um, Ultimately, I can't give him higher remarks. Like, I think the Demon King and what he did for Seven Deadly Sins was more impactful. Do you agree? To... See, it's because the Demon King was the direct main antagonist. It's not like Meliodas and Seven Deadly Sins were going up against a like a, a, a huge society or world issue. They were, though, because the Demon King and the Supreme Deity were direct opposition of chaos and created the world as it is now, creating a perpetual conflict between the demons and the angels. So they created how society was now, and they wanted to keep it that way. Very similar to Peter and the Queen. It's so different, RT, and you know it is. It's so the only difference, but the only difference is they didn't, it's not a fighting series. That's the only difference. I mean, even if it was a fighting series, it was like, well, granted, if it was fighting series, I promise everything would be extremely different, but sure. like, I, I don't think it really changes the fact that, like, that, like, even though the, you could argue that, oh, the, the Demon King and the Supreme Deity are a force of nature, or they are the force of society because of their eternal conflict, the way that the author wrote them is that they are characters, that they are, that they do have, like, like, like outside of them being at force, they they have characterization out whether how good or bad it may. So be. does the Queen and Pete? They do, but not to that extent, in my opinion. Because she didn't write it that way. Because they weren't supposed to be that, in my opinion. No, they could have been like that, but she didn't write it that way. That's why they give low marks because they're not that way. Because they're not supposed. If they're to not written. But if they're not written well, then they're not written well. I don't. So think- it is. I don't think there were supposed to be the main antagonist. I think the main antagonist is the side. So, it, honestly, it's, it's, it's more of a difference on what we believe the main antagonist probably never was. But the thing... Yeah. I don't know, bro. I think you're, you're kind of, like, giving... Giving uh, the Promised Neverland a, uh, some favorability in this just one. Because, like... It's not, I don't... It's not my favorite series of all time. It's not even in there. No, I get it, but I... 
Okay, regardless, one thing that is true is society's only this way because of the Queen's family and Peter's family, and both of them are still alive, keeping society the way it is. That is true. Right. They want to keep society this way. The only way you're stopping society from being this way is taking them out. That is the only way. Or, or you know, forming a deal with that. No, you have to take them out. There's a reason why Emma formed a deal and took them out. Well, because well, she had to take not kill them, but get, get like get rid of them. Well, because uh, what's it called? The demons were still that they were going to end up fighting each other and starving them. So I mean, she kind of had to take the old. The queen had to be taken out for a different reason, in my opinion. Queen still had to be taken out, and Peter had to be taken out because she was worried they would chase after them. Well, no, they still had to be taken out. I don't think so, because if, if the god of that verse wanted to, they could have just separated everything and left the, 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 the queen. But that's not what Emma wanted. Emma wanted... Um, Emma didn't want a situation... Well, Emma wanted separation. But in terms of the, the, the demons, Emma didn't want them to suffer. So yeah. Emma wasn't going to leave without everything being okay first. Right, yeah, but I'm saying... If, if Emma so was- the queen had to be gone. She didn't. She didn't. She really didn't have to. It, it, like Emma's main goal of wanting everyone to escape to the human world—that that is only her main goal. She didn't have to even fool around with the queen at all. But that's not Emma's character. She would do that, though. We know who Emma is. That's she will do that. She became. She kind of ended up caring more about demons as the story. I agree, but they still had to get rid of the queen in order for her to plan to succeed. And really, the only reason she cared about the demons that much is because of that. I forget Sonju and Sonju and Mahika. But that's not all. That's not the only reason why. Because she saw some kids and was like, "Oh man, kids need to eat too." And look, even though they're eating a the human body, they do need to eat. So it's like, "Thank them as well." Oh, it's like, okay, Emma, whatever. <laughs> all right, Emma. Um. All right. Well, for the main antagonist, I'm gonna give them uh, a four. So, you know, it is what it is. Um, the villains, I think the only villain that had any value was the Duke, honestly. Yeah, the, the Duke was amazing. Was it Levitans? Duke Luvis, I think Luvis. maybe that's Luvis. It's like because you have to just kind of like make up your own. Very true. And the crazy thing about it, I'm going to say it again, the Duke had potential to be even greater than he was. He had so much story that they didn't dive into. Yeah, honestly, they fumbled him, which is kind of funny. He was still great despite actually being fumbled. Like, he was the cause of the promise. He destroyed the humans. He met Julius. And, and, by, and by him meeting Julius, everything happened. But they didn't really touch upon that at all. Why, like, I, I think that's one of the things that I enjoy a lot about *Promise Neverland* because I'm starting to, I'm starting to, to notice something. I tend to like a bit of ambiguity, the stuff left up to like you know readers' thoughts and readers' explanations, and kind of like you know the 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 story gives you some pieces, but ultimately you kind of fill it in yourself. Where it sounds like you like everything to be completely, fully fleshed out, fully understood. So there's no yeah. So there, because it makes some weird like weird takes of some. Like, just let the mangaka create their story. Because if they're creating their story, they're creating the story. When it comes to ambiguity, if they have, like, an ambiguous, like, ending or backstory, then sure. But if there's, like, plot points that can definitely be delved into to increase the value of the story, 
I think they need to delve into that. And Duke being your best villain, I think he deserved that, for sure. Um, and I think every other villain had little to no presence. Even that one guy who chased him down with a gun. I don't even remember his name. Is that the guy that ran them out of the uh, shelter? Yeah, I'm, he, I have, I don't even remember his name. Like, he wasn't really around for all that long. <laughs> so Duke is the only one I remember. Everybody else had no presence. That's because, so, like I was saying in our previous conversation, the story really wasn't supposed to be like, Main character group faces off against this guy, and then they beat him. We get his whole backstory. Main character faces off against this guy. Now it wasn't. It that's wasn't, not what I'm. That's not what I'm talking about. Because even in psychological thrillers, there are villains, antagonistic forces that have stories to tell that are that are very much involved on why this, on where they stand in this world, and the characters have to get past that force. And Duke was the perfect embodiment of the world he just never got delved into on how how important how how deep he is as an Italian. And everybody else had no story. Like Duke had a little bit, everybody else had none. I'd argue Isabella had a decent Oh yeah, Isabella oh, that I'll give you that one. Isabella's actually a really good one. I'll give you that one. She's really because she's one of those characters that kinda just does whatever she has to do to like to to like go on, I guess. So she kinda fits in a lot of places. See, that's what I'm talking. Isabella is actually really good because once we learn more about Isabella, we got our little backstory. Uh, once we learn more about the world, we got a lot more context on why she was, how she was too. Like, she was a good antagonist. Duke was too. And the crazy part: the two best antagonists were very, very pivotal in saving the world at the in the final arc. Now you think about it. <laughs> it's like, it's like, oh, interesting. I see why they got a little story. Okay, all right. Understood, understood. Okay, interesting. I see what you're doing. Um, for is okay. I'll I'll make everybody non-existent, and I'll give some favorability here. I'll give some consideration here. Isabella and Duke were good. They could have been better. What would you give them as a collective? I'll pretend everybody else doesn't exist and had no presence. But what would you give those two? <laughs> you kind of have to, because everybody else was irrelevant. Like Jesus. I think, I think, um, what you call them? Sister Crone was decent, actually. Sister Crone, she wasn't decent. I feel like once I find, once you find out more about Isabella, it makes Sister Crone feel kind of, like, pointless. True. It makes her feel, like, really pointless, too. But, I'd say Isabella was cool. She was, like, a six to me, honestly. I think Lavis could have been. Like, he could have been, like, a nine. But he could have. Like, him being gone for that, like, massive amount of time, and then just popping back up in the end on Emma's side was, like, whoa. Like, <laughs> like it was, like, hype, but there were so many questions that I had had that weren't really going to get answered. I mean, granted, he did wish for things to kind of go back to the way that they were, where people had to hunt and kill for their food and all that other stuff, but, like... Hit, I, I just never seen that coming at all. But yeah, I mean, I was like, I guess so. It was one of those I guess so moments because we knew that his sister had to. Yeah. Of course, it was like, I guess. Sure. <laughs> all right. All right. I guess so. Um, siding siding with Emma's side after he lost, I'm like, I guess so too because 
he kind of let things happen. If he really was against it, he could have done something, but he didn't. It was like, so it's like, okay. I guess I'll give him a seven. The highest I can give him is just a seven, just because like, it like the way that the author did him was so dirty. Yeah. Also, when you think about, it, he's the reason why the society is like this today, because he introduced Julius. So it's like kind of funny. <laughs> so, all right. I'm I'm gonna give it personally. I'll give it give it a six. Um, even though I think Isabella and du- Luvis are their best villains, I do think there are problems with Bellas both in a way. Um, well, I like I actually like Isabella, but I still have to keep in mind that all the other villains were relatively non-existent. So you keep saying this. There were well, there are so much villains that are actually important that should have been important. You remember that one. Uh, that one duke that was always by the queen's side. Like, he was there since the beginning of time. He had no, like, he didn't exist. He was it there was, from the, like... Because the story wasn't about him. It's not about, it was, because the story itself wasn't about, like, it was about everything all at once. It wasn't about, like, oh, just the demon uh, promise, or it wasn't just about the demon royalty, and it wasn't just about him and them getting to, it was about everything all at once, so to get a whole bunch of one thing would have been kind of weird. Just a little, like, even like, there was four, three other societies with three, like, demon royalties ahead of it, and they all run their societies very differently, they even touched upon it, whereas, like, the that one like, female-ish demon was actually very, like, favorable to her people. Like, there was so much could have done in terms of the dynamics of their society, and how their individuality kind of plays into what's wrong with society, too, because a lot of them didn't even like how society was. Like, a lot of them didn't even like each other. Like, so... They're just kind of already in it, so... Like, yeah. they're just kind of already in it. There's... Even with Gielin... So let's talk about side characters. Even with, like, Gielin, when he got introduced, like, he had so much value, but he was, like, he was non-existent. But then he was super important. And then he had the fight. Like his value was like a couple chapters, and that's it. Even though he was so important to to how everything kind of turned out, how it was, it's kind of crazy. Um, with that, I said in terms of side characters, you talk about side characters, you gotta talk about um, the only ones that are decently like relevant is Dawn and Gilda, and that's just. No, no, you that's just about, no, barely, bro. You have to talk about uh, about about Hugo and Lucas. They're like oh, baby. those one arc characters. Wow, but they're so but like granted they're one arc, but they're so important. To, like without them, this, this whole story really does not even happen. It, it, like, I agree. It does agree not happen. Like you, you could you could take Don and, and and that other chick out, and the story could actually still just happen. It's so. You have a point there, especially since they had a full story. We knew what happened to Hugo and Lucas. We knew how they interacted with Goldie Pond. We knew how they failed. We knew how uh, Hugo lived in isolation, thinking that everybody was dead, and how Lucas was at Goldie Pond trying to survive. Like, their stories were actually very well done and very well constructed. And it's the actual example of, like, talking into your characters a little bit. They actually have examples of them doing that, and that's Hugo and Lucas, then they kill them off, because they're adults, and they're like, nah, we can't have any adults survive, so they kill them off, and he's like, alright, let's 
Let's get this over with. And um, I actually agree. I think they were pretty good characters, although they they were very short lived. They were here for a one. They were fire characters. They were amazing. They're great. They were they were cool. I think that what they did with them is what the mangaka could have done with so many other things. Um, I'll give them generally a seven, but when I take the totality of time here in general, you'd have to double the entire series if you wanted like that level of fleshed outness for everybody who you think is a main villain and everybody who you think is a main sidekick. You, the story would get so long. It would be so okay. long. You, gotta, you can pick your battles, though, right? You can make... So what the, what the thing about The Promised Neverland is that have had a longer story, 100%, but they wanted to go with the psychological thriller. So, obviously, one of the things that they do is they introduce so many characters, right? So, that's their fault. They have a lot of characters. That is their own fault. A lot of the characters aren't meant to be important, though. Like, it's like they're, they're there for the sake of the story, but they're not supposed to be important. The reason why I can't buy that is though, so many of them do such important things in the story that literally save Emma's butt, like, constantly. Um, because all of them are, th- I mentioned it earlier, all of them are, like, extremely intelligent, and is, like, very capable. Like, all of them are way more capable than just, like, the average 25-year-old. I mean, like, when you think about what world they live in, I mean, these are all people that have escaped from demon captivity and now live hiding away fighting demons. So, I mean... Anybody who just did a regular idiot would not exist here. They just wouldn't be able to exist. And that's why I'm saying, like, you have so many of these characters, and a lot of them have little to no presence. So, the Luke, Hugo and Lucas was there, but they were there for an arc. Then you had Dawn and Gilda, who had potential, considering they were there from the beginning, but they never felt any like anything throughout the story. Because you literally said you could have taken them out, and the story would have been fine. You had other characters. You had other characters in Goldie Pond who seemed like they could have had value. People like Oliver, that like one girl. Phil? I thought Phil was going to do something at some point. Exactly. Phil was a character. Of, even the, the... Like, I liked that squad that was hanging out with Norman. They all were, like, savages. But, like, all of them apparently had no presence and no character. So, they, I'll give them... Sonju and Mahika also had a lot of potential. I forget her name, but the one chick who's like, she was raised by demons and she didn't talk. She had so much potential, she did nothing. Yeah, I know exactly who you're talking about. I forget her name. It's like, it starts with an A thing. Because she had a whole different perspective. And she hated Norman. They did not touch upon that story at all. Yeah, because it kind of got talked about for like a quick second, but then like, it didn't. Yeah, it's like, okay, they took her in. She was who was was sent with Donna Gilda, and it also seemed like Norman knew. It's like, so like she, she had so much potential. She like can talk to. She was like raising wolves. Like like she she could have been like that fan favorite character that everybody loved, but she had little to no story. So you had a lot of gems. You don't need to touch upon everybody. I'm not saying you do. But you have a lot of gems that could have been touched upon. Even if you wanted to keep it as simplistic as possible, like, diving into Sonju and Mahika a little bit more would have done wonders. Because they were literally the one of the biggest reasons why everything happened the way they happened, because they are demons that are that like humans and don't eat humans. So, it just seemed like everything kind of centered around Emma, and then Ray and Norman helped her. 
and all the other characters were there to fill a purpose, and that's it. Which is, like, I I mean, I guess, but it, it makes the other characters seem relatively, like, irrelevant. And, or characters that don't have character is what it, what it seems like at the end of the day. Like oversimplify it like that. I mean, you can oversimplify anything and make it sound not as impressive as it actually is. But like, you gotta admit, if we ask the average Promise Neverland fan, um, other than Norman Ray and uh, Emma, well, who's your favorite character? They probably won't even remember anybody's name. They're gonna say Lucas and Hugo. That's what they're gonna say. I think most people don't even. I think most people don't even remember their names because they were only here for an arc. Oh my gosh, but there's so you better hope I can't find a freaking popularity poll to this thing, because it'll probably I mean so many questions. Popularity polls are given to fans that are reading the series currently, but everybody who's taken aback from Promise Neverland, like Promise Neverland has been done a while. You just ask some random person, hey you like Promise Neverland? It's like, yeah, who's your favorite character that's not Ray Norman uh, and Emma? Okay, you could do the same thing for Naruto about people who have who Chat. Hitachi, Hitachi, Minato. No, you cannot. You can Gara, Rock Lee. No you cannot do that. Anybody that anybody that does not currently watch Boruto or is not heavily invested in. Oh, you want to compare Promise Neverland to Boruto? I'm just, you, I could have took a different series. I could have took any other one. What I, series? I I, I think it's Cap. If you take somebody that uh, people love Toshiro and Rukia and. and if you say and Kempachi, Biakia, yeah, I was out there. I was like, no, nah, I probably should have. Uh, that's why I was like, Kempachi, like, my like, come on now. Let's let's like, there's levels to this. A lot of these characters actually give these characters characterization. Come on now. <laughs> Promise Neverland doesn't. They focus on three characters and everybody else has server purpose. Like, let's just be honest. So with that said, I gave side characters in general five because at least they do stuff. You know, it's it's funny we have this huge like disagreement, but I'd only give them like a six. Just <laughs> funny. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because I'm being honest, I'm an objective critic, right? Um. So with that said, let's do some bath with the characters. It's been a lot. I'm interested. We're gonna, okay, let's I, before we go ahead and apply. I want to go into settings, but give me a second. The setting? Yeah, the world. Okay, characters get a and overall. All right, settings. So that's the lore slash history and the geography. So the reason why I want to do this is because I want to talk about that freaking god. That god makes no damn sense. What do you mean it doesn't make any sense? What? It's supposed to be a demon, but demons came from bacteria. How did they create a god that can surpass the fourth dimension? I mean, a god is just a god, you know. I mean, it's not. Really this is the Promised Neverland. It's supposed to be a realistic series, and they have a god that can do whatever they want. For that statement right there made no sense. The Promise is not a realistic series. In terms of the dynamics of the series, like the humans made sense, and even the demons made sense. They're made from bacteria that will evolve by eating other species. That. In terms of in terms of how they built it up, it logically makes sense. But then they throw in that there's some god that's also a demon that can, that you can make a promise with. Like what? I mean, it's just talking about demons in general. It's just so much of like a fantasy element. It's but it's bacteria. It's not really demons. They're bacteria. Holy demons. They're bacteria. That's what they. That's the. That's their origination. No, they're demons. Oh my God! King Fatty right now. I'm not going to no. 
They literally say in Promise Neverland they are bacteria. I, I, I understand that, but we're not about to sit around and just say that they're just germs. They're demons. They are... Okay, I don't know why you thought it... You thought it was so dirty right there? That's crazy. No, so... Their origination is that they were bacterial organisms that grew by eating other organisms, and by eating other organisms, they grew the traits of said organism, and once one of those organisms ate a human, they started gaining human intelligence, and in order to keep that human intelligence, they had to keep on eating humans. Correct. So their process of life makes sense, but then there's an extra element of a god existing that's also... A bacteria? Yeah, how did that happen? No, it's just it's just an absolute ruler of the verse. I mean, that's just what it is. They have a that makes no sense. What are you talking? It's a god. It's like, they're not supposed to make sense. It's not. That makes no sense. There's, so, there's some random god that's also part of the same species. You could say the same thing for so many series that introduce a god into the verse. It like what? Okay, take like Attack on Titan. You have this random. There's alien, no god. You have this random alien centipede monster that gives people Titan powers. That's no, that's not how. That's no. That's not how. Everything. No, no. That's not how. That's not. That's not how it works. alien. No, it's not an alien. What? It's literally. It came from. Uh, it's one of those. It, when it comes to life, it's so one of the themes about Attack on Titan is that life. One of the aspects of life is that it continues to want to multiply and grow. And because of that, one of the uh, things that... Okay, I would have to read Attack on Titan and see exactly how that kind of falls together. ...the forest and fell into a tree that went, went underwater for some reason, and there's this weird uh, monster under there. Like, what... How did that... Make, okay, okay, how, okay. That, like I said, they did explain it with, like, the multiplication of life and everything. I would have to reread it to give you a proper answer. But it's not like... There's um, some extra... It, it came from the process of life and life wanting to multiply and grow. That's how they explained it. It's not like it's extra from how the world's already working. That's so extra. That series was so based in, quote-unquote, realisticness outside of Titans. But, like... And then there's just this weird being that just existed that gave... That, 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 that's weird. It's not a weird... Like, like I said, it came... It, it all deviated from the, the main principles of life wanting to multiply. But the thing about the promised never—that's that's the one of the cores behind the Titan powers. Well, you, I would have to when I reread Attack on Titan, I'll give you a full explanation. But um, the thing about the promised Neverland is they already explain how demons work, which is the bacterial aspect. But then you have another being that's also a fourth-dimensional god, just cause. I'm just saying this guy is literally the god of verse. I don't think it's supposed to be. We don't even know. Like we don't even know if it is a demon. You said, say that again? Was it even actually a demon? Yeah, because it, it, at Tafari, it ate, uh... I mean, oh, it yeah. looked like a demon. And also, it, it ate humans after Tafari. Lions eat humans, they're not whatever. True, but also, like, the demons led the human to them, so the demons had to find him somehow. Yeah, they knew of, uh, like, the random ritual to even get in contact with him some kind of way. But my thing yeah. is, like, this thing lives in its own dimension, like, in its own verse, separate from this, from, from the actual place where Emma and them are, and, and like, possessing crazy abilities. So I, I really think this thing being some type of, like, like, deity isn't that crazy. 
But it just was so off-putting that they, in order for them to continue their plot, they had to find a fourth-dimensional god to make a promise with. I mean, that's what happened with the with the very first promise. I mean, so... Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm like, in terms of the Promise Neverland universe, you could have done everything you did without the god. Well, no, because they had to... Because how are they going to separate the worlds or get them unseparated? It's not like... Uh, unless unless you were taking the, the very first initial initial promise as just a agreement between humans and demons, but they know, made two promises. That's they, what they said. They did, but even if they did, there's no way to really like enforce enforce it. Yeah. So I guess that had to be some type of like mystical supernatural being to force that. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess that's a fortunate way for the for the mangaka to make sure that there wasn't any like. No, no, that's what I'm saying. In order for their story to make sure that it's completely separate from humanity while we'll keeping humanity alive, I guess I guess that's fair. But also, at the same time, when it comes down to it, it makes it very easy to solve all your problems once Emma meets God itself. I mean, it did and it didn't, because it's not like the God was just going to do it for free. Like, and he basically did it for free. And you had to get there, too, and the, which was the ordeal. Which was impressive, I'll give you that. Like, you had to find where the place was, because they had found it, but they, they couldn't do anything with it. They had to leave and then come back. So it was like, it was a lot. Yeah, in terms of finding the god, I'll give it to them. And, although... Like a year or something. This is like a year to even find him or something. Like, But also, think, all right, Quan, think, like outside, Quan, think of this sentence. Think like, of this hey. sentence, though. It took me a year to find god. Like, come on. I mean, considering that these are all... Go on, like, let's go on. In a world... It took me Only a... Oh my god, it took me so long. It took me a whole year to find God? Like, <laughs> They didn't even know where to... I mean, didn't they know exactly where to go, though? Yeah, William helped him. He, he knew where God was, but he couldn't meet God. So they actually had instructions to yeah, meet God. Yeah, he did all of the groundwork for him, so... And then uh, eventually they met God because Emma was given the amulet from Mejica. Also, Mejica's existence is really like, okay. She's also a mutation. She's a perfect mutation. She just existed. Which is why I liked it, how it went in Problems Everyone. Like, if you had, you know, her and you also had, listen, Adam, they're both like. They they had mutations to help them kind of. They had plot devices to fix all the problems of the universe. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. That's crazy. Now, Adam was a hundred percent plot device. Mahika, I would say that's fine. I would actually be fine with Mahika, but Adam was a hundred percent. I think Adam very well played. Honestly, I don't think. Right. It's not like Adam came out of nowhere. It's not like he was. He had been in the story. Like they. How did he get to Goldie Pond? He was just, how did any of them get to Goldie Pond? They were just there, like... He was at Lambda. How did he, from Lambda, get to Goldie Pond? No, there's no explanation. That's the problem. No, you can't, because he is the only one that didn't have the side effects. So how did this one creature from Lambda doesn't get affected by side effects end up in Goldie Why would they let that happen? Apparently he was shipped out to Goldie Pond. The, none of the scientists would let that happen. What? Peter knows that Goldie Pond exists. He would not let that happen. Why wouldn't he let that happen? Because Adam has Adam doesn't suffer from the side effects. But he so wasn't. He, but 
But Adam wasn't as smart as Norman. He wanted that level of intelligence. Adam was nowhere near that smart. He, he technically None of them were set. No, they're all clones from Norman. So he kept all of them. Why would he just get rid of Adam? I would deem Adam as, as a failure. Wasn't there other ones that were similar to Adam that, that were also there? No, only Adam was there. All the other ones that were similar to Adam was in Lambda. No, no, no. There was other ones that had, like, crazy, like, uh, pow not powers, but, like, you know what I mean. Like, they were, like, no, they were in Lambda, all of them. The only one that apparently wasn't in Lambda was Adam, which is also the only one that didn't have any side effects. Yes. Yes. They were all in Lambda. Norman saved them. I have Alright, I'm telling yeah, you. No, okay, so yeah, the purpose of Lambda was to was a more efficient way to create higher quality human lifestyle. Yeah. Yes. So like, yeah. so all of the weird ones were sometimes get, where they were getting shipped. No, they're all in Lambda still. Like literally, the the thing the thing about the uh, the other ones that look exactly like Adam were all in Lambda that Norman recruited to hunt down uh, Mahika. Remember? So when when initially Norman came up with a plan to kill uh, Mahika and Sanju, so he had a he had a force to hail Dawn and Gilda, and that force was consistent of Adam clones, all of them. So all of those people he got from Lambda. I think maybe if we would have had like more from what happened in Lambda, this might have actually been better understood. I think it was a plot device to keep Norman alive, personally. I think I think she was like, I kind of don't want to kill off Norman. Adam, I got an idea. And that's what she did. I think that's what It's fine, just calling a, a spade a spade, bro. Just calling a spade a spade. Hey, Dawn. That's for storytelling. Expert. I'll say this. I'll keep this honest. The first two arcs were good. After that first two arcs, everything else was rushed, which is my biggest problem. I will talk about it more when it comes to plot, but in terms of the lore and history, I actually give it a five because I think that legit they touch upon a lot of stuff, but they never delved into any of it. I don't know why you want this full like like for the purpose of what it was supposed to do, which is get us familiar with what's going on, why it's going on, and then now we need to go past it and fix it. It did that. And it didn't leave anything so unexplained as to where stuff just didn't make sense. So, like, it served the purpose, so I don't know why it's getting... I disagree. So, my problem with what you're saying, Quan, is you're you're saying uh, I shouldn't expect the characters get uh, delved into. I shouldn't expect the lore to be delved into. I shouldn't expect the history to be delved into. As long as the main character does the per pro the things that she has to do for the world, that's all good enough. And I disagree. When you're telling a story, you're, you're, there's a lot of elements to think about. Now, if you want to skip past it, that's fine. But you can't be a complete story without the other elements that when it comes to writing a story down. The story is left incomplete, though, to so much so to where like we don't know what's going on, though. No, I'm not saying that, but in terms of the whole concrete... Uh, the, that, what everything that consists of how to create a story, then no, I disagree. When it comes to the main point of Emma saving everybody, like, sure, you, every story has a beginning, middle, and end for the main character and her purpose. They did the beginning, middle, and end, but there's more to create a story. There's a reason why series like One Piece is, like, the greatest of all time, because of all the, everything that they create, that, uh, everything that they 
crude in terms of creating the story and the universe that they are in. The, the Promised Neverland has a lot of lore with the god, with the religion, with the, the world to being corrupt, to have Queen killed her dad, with William Minerva becoming who he became, with Julius and what he did in terms of the promise, and how that promise, uh, how in the war he, he changed his mind, that there are so many things that they that created the world as it was and corrupted as it is that just wasn't delved into. Even the most important aspect of the god itself and the explanation on how it exists, how the how the bacteria found the god and how that god why that god even makes promises with humans in the first place. Like this is stuff that in terms of like the main character completing their goal, you could argue that you don't need this, but in terms of having a coherent, complete story, then yes. When I read re reread Attack on Titan, Stone Quan, I'm gonna be the same exact way. Right. Not every, not there's no story explains every single aspect of, of of just every piece of lore and backstory. I'm not saying it needs to explain everything. I need to, I need, but it still needs to explain stuff. Like and it, I don't think Thomas Sutherland explains anything. I think they touch upon it very like 10 percent of the surface, and that's it. And like everything they do. For the most part. They touch on it as much as it needs to be touched on, in my opinion. Any more is like a full deep dive into that, which is unnecessary. I, I disagree. Some of the better stories that are written have these deep dive that, that you that enthrall you into the entire universe. You're now enthralled in the universe. By the time we see who the queen is No you're not. You're only enthralled on what Emma's doing. You don't care anything about what the universe is. We don't need to be like that's a lie. That's okay. Then, then you can say this. nobody says that for One Piece. But one of the biggest reasons why people like One Piece is because of how grandiose the world. If you really wanted to do it, if you wanted to bear, it, wanted to bear it down to the bone essentials, Luffy could have just did what he did, and that's it. But in order to make, and the reason why it's the greatness is there is because of how grandiose the world is in general, and how grandiose everything is. It feels like a realistic uh, outlook of what is going on in Luffy's journey. That, and, and then Oda keeps it really consistent. He keeps everything like foreshadowed. I'd argue that's probably the big is the foreshadowing. Yeah, it all, it all comes together at the end of the day, which makes a very coherent story. I'm just being, when I'm uh, analyzing The Promised Neverland, because like when I, I did the same thing for the Full Metal Alchemist, I don't think they had these issues when I, when I was reading it. Or even Magi. I think Magi did a lot of... There's things I did have issues with when it comes to Magi around its ending. But I didn't think Magi had a lot of these issues where they didn't dive into a lot of this stuff. They dove into a lot of this stuff. A lot of the same arguments in, like, Seven Deadly Sins. Like, oh, where did Chaos come We did have... That's why it was, like, a 6.65. We did have those criticisms. I don't remember us talking about where Chaos came from. and like, why it feels the need to make darkness and light fight each other or that kind of thing. I don't, I don't recall. That wasn't Chaos's decision. That's like de the Demon King and the and the Supreme Deity chose to betray Chaos, and because of their uh, hatred for humans. Because humans were kind of seen as Chaos's favorite, so I guess they were like, exactly. They were they were greedy. They were selfish. But and so, but there are pre parts of Seven Deadly Sins we did that uh, we did appreciate in terms of their lore because they did dive into a little bit in terms of the demon society, in terms of the fairies, in terms of the giants. Whereas the Promised Neverland, I don't think they dove into it at all. We now, don't get deep dive into really the lore of the fairies or the giants or anything all like that. We don't really know much about their past culture. 
Well, we don't know what Loxana was doing in his time as the first Fairy King outside of that small flashback with, like, Sigma. We don't know what was going on with Kroll during his time as King of the Giants. We don't know any of that stuff at all. We don't even know about Demon Society outside of they've always been at war with the, uh, with the guys who don't know any of that stuff. But the problem with, with uh, you're, you're kind of misconstruing me saying that it needs to dive into everything, when that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it needs to dive into anything, and I don't think it does anything in terms of diving. The, the backstory the backstory of the Provin Leveland universe and why it's so corrupt right now has got like three pages of exposition. That's I, it. It explains as much as it needs to be explained. It doesn't need... So, like, would you would have preferred an entire backstory on, on this entire war that had happened in the past and, and you know, the, the, the makings of the initial promise and all of that? Yes, that would have been very important to understand why society is... Why it, why it is why it is now. Right, why the Rapture family took hold, why the demons were... Or, how the demons interacted uh, against the Ratri family, and even for the most part, it would have put a lot of like context in terms of like how humanity thought back then, and even the relationship that the demons had with God in the first place. That's too much. You have to look at it from why most readers read a story in the first place is because they really enjoy the main character. That's typically why most people read the story. So when you have these big, long expositionary pieces that don't really involve the main character at all, it's why people don't like it or why people don't care for that kind of stuff. If I, dis- purpose, I, I, I don't if, know if I agree to that. If your purpose is a deep dive explanation of things, then sure, by all means. If your purpose is to sell a story, I don't think that's a good idea. No, I disagree completely. I don't know a single example where... Um, for oh, not let me not say that. I think for the most part, in terms of generality of like successful stories, the main character journey is there. But what it makes it really enthralling is like making it a complete story, and that includes diving into the lore. I think most successful series do that. But to say Promise Neverland has not dove into the lore at all is a little disingenuous. Okay, they do. They did it like three pages. It just wasn't yeah. as much as you wanted it to be. No, it wasn't at all. Like even okay, one I'll give I'll put things in perspective. When I reread slash rewatch Death Note, for example, from my memory, they don't really dive into the lore of Death Note the Death Note much from my memory. So I that's gonna be a criticism when I do an analysis, because that's one of those examples where it's like, okay, some important uh, metaphysical thing impacted the the main characters, but there's really no expl- explanation on how the system even what works or why it happened. Story, the purpose of the story is, is 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 now the purpose of the story is light has this, and now how is light going to be affecting everything else with this book? How is he going to you know go through his journey with with, with, with the death? The purpose of the story isn't where the death came from. Doesn't add. I never said that was a purpose, but I think it's a criticism that you, that's not an element part of the story. What's the point of fleshing out more about said death note if it's not the if it's not really important to the story though? Because it gives context on the why light was chosen. It could give context on the death note's uh, purpose in terms of society in general. It could give context in terms yeah, of like about light though. It's not about no. You're only saying that because you already watched death note. But once you include that, that would enhance the story. I I mean any extra information I I think can. Lord can enhance the story, but I don't think it's necessary. I don't know. I think it's just... I, 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 
general, I, I disagree in terms of creating a complete story. Now, creating a successful story and a complete story are completely different. What I'm analyzing is story as a whole. Now, Promised Neverland can be successful without being a complete story. Like, like Fairy Tale. Like, I don't know if you were there, but Fairy Tale, I gave it a 6.35. I think it's not a complete story by any means. I think it's better than that. But it is a successful story. It can still be successful. What does that statement mean? Well, based on all the elements that I'm analyzing. Because the, the author is just trying to create a story. They're not trying to, like, completely create an entire verse that has no fallacies in it. So it's like, what do you even mean by that? I'm not, I didn't say perfect. I said complete in terms of, like, making sure you're touching upon all the elements that make up a story in terms of storytelling. The most successful story... You, well, the most successful stories, I would say, like the, the, the creme de la creme, the perfect ones, touch upon, like, all this stuff, I would say. So... That that's why um, that's that's why I'm you know diving into those important elements. One piece has also been going on for like almost thirty years. That's why it's so great, and because it's also selling a lot, so it's keeping it's keeping everybody enthralled. And that's that's why One Piece will keep high ratings. That's why it is one of the girls because it is a complete story. Even like even something that's not lo as low as One Piece that got very high ratings it was like Magi, like. It was it was very very good considering all the story elements that it brought to 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 the surface. I think you're biased. Promise Neverland allowing criticism. I'm not biased. I just think because you you are and what we value in story. Uh, there's I'm not saying which one I value more. I'm looking at everything. There's no. There's no value metric. I'm not putting one thing over the other. I'm looking at at it as a complete collection. Yeah, no, I, and and what I mean by that, I mean I, I think I think we appreciate different things in stories. I don't think you have the same amount of appreciation as I do for the ambiguity in certain things. Well, I'm talking about everything, and I th I don't think ambiguity is a story element. I think that's just way. Um, I think the only times that's a useful skill is when you have like an ambiguous ending to a story that lets the audience kind of figure things out. Spoon feed your audience every bit of information. Like their brains can kind of infer and figure things out on their own. And 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 I think it is important to limit the amount of information and just exposition that you throw at your reader because it's overloading. Like there's parts of Magi that I can say for a fact, especially in that backstory, the really long backstory where I'm like, this is a lot. This is a lot to take in. This is just a lot. But Promise Neverland, even in the moments where it was on the... It, it, it got close a couple times, but it was very digestible. It was able to portray a good amount of, of information and explain everything while remaining digestible. There are, there are 100% moments in Magi where it is not digestible it over in like, a, in like a quick glance. Definitely not. No, that's fine. I'm not even saying you need to have it where it's like you have to make every little detail explained. But if you don't have a good amount explained, or any explained, it's then explained that's explained as much as it needs to be. Three pages of backstory is not explained as much as it needs to be. It's just not. But for, not maybe not for you, maybe. <laughs> like, maybe. No, not for the whole... Like, the only thing that... It, that ha when it comes to the Promised Neverland, one of the things that they do in terms of the universe and, and Emma's journey is they focus completely on disrupting the society in the way it is and Emma's issues with how society is right now. If we have no explanation, or we do have somewhat of an explanation, but it would enhance the, the, uh, 
the duality of Emma's issues with society and the problems with society if we know more of why society is the way it is right now. So it's just like... We, we do, they, they explained why, why it is the way it is. They touch upon it. They explained like, it. Whatever verbiage you want to use, they did explain it. They just didn't do a full, full, deep autopsy on every element of the society. They didn't do any... Literally, we had like three pages of exposition. Like, we, Julius was fighting Duke Lupus, Julie and the Duke Lupus killed people, he got frustrated, and made a promise to demons, GG's, that's how, what, society is the way it is, right? No, there's a lot more that goes into it, because you have the whole, like, because then it ties into the demons setting up the whole deal with how they're going to get humans to freaking eat, there's the whole demon royalty being set up. For how their society is going to be maintained now, there's definitely a they, 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 they didn't touch upon the royalty and and the dynamics of all the five families. They didn't touch upon the fact that the queen killed her king, how she took a rose, and um her how and eating what was it the the they didn't even touch upon the fact that they uh when they eat upon that ate the people that Mahika uh found. And they became who they became and how that affects society. It even touched upon Sanju was a part of the royal family. We didn't find that out until uh, he, to the very end. And how he left and joined Mihika. We didn't even touch upon how he met Mihika in the first place. They didn't touch upon the fact that, uh, well, I already touched upon William Minerva. And, like, he's relatively non-existent for the most part. We just got, like, we got the moderate nippets without the moderate, basically, when it comes down to William Minerva. So I'm like... When it comes to the promised Neverland, I, mean, I they they did Emma's journey, sure, but there are a lot of elements around the final arc. I think the first two arcs are fine. I think they did very. I think she did perfect for the first two arcs. But when it came to like the final arc, and when she started introducing things, she seemed like to me she was just rushing past things. Like for the most part, inherently in almost everything she did. With the Norman stuff, with the William, the Peter stuff, with the demon lineage, with the God stuff, with the religion stuff, like they also like offense. They found out um, that there were five like religious figures just in the in, in like perpetual, uh, whatever the words is. So they were just in there for some reason, waiting for someone to revive them. I guess like there was just a lot of things that are happening at the end that were just happening to push the story along. And if you gave more context on the world and why it is the way it is, that would have helped alleviate those issues. It's really not too much. I don't know why you think it's so hard for the for for you to add more exposition on on your own world. I don't think adding more is bad. I just think that the amount that was in there, considering how long the series was, it was 180 chapters. It wasn't that long. Yeah, no, exactly. Considering how long it was, I think I think it did a great job. Oh, for the amount, sure, but in terms of like a complete story, then no. This whole this whole complete story. If it's missing elements or do, does a lack of just it's or not, job, the elements are there. They're just not as as people like you wanted. Or does a lackluster job? Then it didn't do it. That's like saying it did a bad job. Do you think it did a bad job? And a lot of and a lot of elements in the final arc. Yes. Oh my. Like God. it was like a lot of things just weren't explained and it just rushed past. I don't like. I, I, I'm okay with ambiguity, but there's certain extents you got to start explaining some stuff. I think it's explained as need to. What do I? I do agree with you. I do think towards the ending it did get rushed. I do think so. But like, I don't know, bro. 
I, I think people ask for a lot. I, I think. Why? Why do you think it's a lot? I don't understand why you think it's a lot. Like if it's going to be the same thing for Black Clover if it does like if it starts rushing past stuff and doesn't explain anything. Like you're gonna get the same criticism. See, it's just a criticism. It just depends on. See, like, okay, so say, like, Black Clover ends, like, in, like, a little bit or something, and we never go back to, like, oh, man. Like, like, like say, say they never flesh out dwarves. I'm not going to care because I don't think that's important to the story. I don't think that was ultimately important to whatever Tabata was trying to do. I just think it was mentioned and that was it. I don't, I'm not going to hold that plot point against them. Whereas that's I like fair. That's fair, and I'm not saying they're missing up. I don't even bring up the fact that they're missing any plot or missing anything that was mentioned that didn't get introduced. Well, I, the equivalent I would say would be the fact that if they don't dive into the dynamics of the Clover Kingdom's uh, discrimination system and didn't uh, dive into how that system, um, that system in and itself, and how it's getting fixed, how it should be fixed, and like even the the fact of like. How it became that bad in, in general. I'm just talking about the political system in general. If that doesn't get like touched upon at all, and then the arc ends, then that would be a legit criticism. I don't. I don't even think that needs to really be touched on like that. That was a huge thing for Black Clover in the beginning. I mean, it was, and it like it is, and it isn't. You're giving too much leeway. Like if it's a manga doesn't touch upon story elements that they because, because people being. Discriminate people discriminating towards people that are weaker than them is already it explains itself. I don't think it needs to be fully delved into. But it would need to be delved into in terms of like Asta fixing the system or um their reaction to a lot of the things that's going on or the the uh, the I'll say this in general I would say there's certain levels of discrimination that uh I would I would agree with that are self-explanatory. But at the very least, when it comes to the political system and, like, the Wizard King system, how the Wizard King is chosen, um, off fixing that system for good and how it's fixed, if that stuff is not touched upon, then, I, then I'll completely disagree. It'll be in a similar situation to Naruto, in my opinion, how, like, one of Naruto's big things in Shippuden is he wants to stop the cycle of, like, hatred. But it's not like the cycle of hatred really got fully, fully expounded upon outside of in the moments with, like, Jiraiya and, like, Pain. But after that, it's like, oh, you know, they stopped the war, and then all of a sudden, everybody just sets aside their political differences and are friends, even still, or allies, even still after the uh, fourth war. But it's like, I don't think anybody holds the lack of exposition on ending the cycle of hatred against Naruto. Well, when it comes to the cycle, I think it came full circle when uh, when Naruto saved Pain. But that that's that's. That's a different discussion, because a lot of people said that the Naruto story was done after the pain arc, and then it just... <laughs> that's what a lot of people say, so I mean, that's... A, so, um... Okay, so if you had to give a rating for the lore history, what would you give it? Give it a six. That was cool. It's one point difference, Quan. I swear, you're, you're nitpicking me at this point. No, you're nitpicking me. You're nit I gave it a five, you gave it a six. What are we talking about? Well, I'm just giving honest criticism. I am, too. If you give it a six and you think you it it is flushed out, then how does that make sense? Well, because to give it higher than a six, seven and eight is like above and beyond. I just think it's exactly, and that's why it's a five. No, five is average. Exactly. Oh, it's a better than average. It's a six. Is it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's, it's, it was one of the best-selling series of the decade, and you're going to say it's a five in terms of lore and plot. What are you talking about, RT? 
it's it's an average plot, bro. I mean, lore and history for for promise. Literally, uh, yeah, it's average. Though. I'm not worth it. You gave it a six. It's a one point difference at the end. It's one of the best selling manga of all time. So I mean, it's just like. To, to say any aspect of it is, is a five is just kind of crazy. We gave the we gave you gave so is that the reason why you gave most of these things six instead of five? Well, no, that's just genuinely where I feel that they play. Because Lord his because ten for me is typically off of the table. Mm. So I'm honestly, for me a lot of times I'm operating on like a nine point scale to be honest. With you. One piece is on a ten. I don't know what in One Piece I would say is a 10 at this point. I'm not really too sure, to be honest with you. No, I'm talking about the lore and the history. So, it's like, once One Piece ends and it addresses every question that anybody has ever had, it won't be a 10. Lore and history, for me, One Piece, I'd probably give it a 9. Not giving One Piece a 10 is ludicrous. Oh, yeah. So, like, I'm not just, like, get you guys who just throw around 10s like they're freaking candy. I don't throw around 10s like candy, but we're, we're talking about One Piece. Like, the lore and history? That is their bread and butter. Like, come on now. Um, geography, I don't know. For the most part, it's uh, it's like it's hard for a series like this where geography is not really a focus. Like similar like Death Note, it's like right. it's really hard to say if it has any value. Like the power system, it has no value. For geography, I don't know. I I probably will start. Uh, also, so like tough. they they travel and go places. But it's not like, you know, it's not like One Piece, where it's like, since the, the the way they travel, the amount of traveling has a big influence on how many different places they see. Or like Dragon Ball Z, where, you know, they, they've gone to other planets and stuff and seen various places. But like, I don't know. Alright, for moving forward, when I talk about the setting, I'll just encompass the everything that, the, that makes the world. So if geography is important, I'll add it. But for the most part, I'm not going to like do anything with that i'm gonna stick with the five he said six pretty close um all right well since we talked about the plot let's talk about the plot right now i want to i want to let's talk let's start with a positive note kwan start positive yes the beginning of the plot is arguably it arguably i think the anime might have done it better but I think it's arguably 10 or 9. I think Promise Neverland, how it set up its series, is masterful. It's like the thriller, the the stakes, the strategy of the kids, Isabella as an antagonist and an opposing force that's always on their shoulder. Like, that was close to perfect. So I'll, I'll give it. I'd argue everything up until the end of Goldie Pond is really, really good. Really, really. I'm I'm a fine with Goldie Pond too because even though it kind of shift tone a little bit in terms of making it more action oriented, um, sure there was some strategy still involved, but it it uh, lost that kind of thriller aspect to it. I think um, Goldie Pond is still maintained because they were trying to carry out all these series of like strategies and things against these like poachers, I guess, and like. There, there was suspense in trying to figure out what was going to happen on, like, are these plans going to work? You know, who's going to make it? And then even getting back to the bunk or shelter or whatever, and then, like, those guys, like, coming in there and trying to kill all those kids. There was suspense in those moments if you don't know what's going to happen already. 
Yeah, there's some suspense, but definitely since they can fight back, it's uh, I mean, they it changes. Can, but it, it, since it doesn't have a power system, right? Since it's not a battle shown in series, it's not like you know One Piece where it's like, oh, okay, well the main character could probably beat them up at some point. It's like, well, no, these are still kids with guns. I mean, granted, they they are smart, but it doesn't change you know what they actually are at the end of the day. So no, I, I definitely agree. But in terms, I'm just saying it's different from the first arc. I'm not saying it's. Uh, that's basically all I'm saying, because in the first arc, it seems like it's complete mind games and the world's against them. There's nothing they can do against the world. Then, after they got out, it seems like they can't fight back and they can't kill the demons. It's actually possible. So, kind of change it in terms of tone. It's... It be, uh, they started doing it relatively easily a little bit later. I mean, against, like, regular basic demons, sure, but against the one with Goldie Pond, I mean, those were, like, Specialty, so it was a little harder to do. It's not like like you just shoot them one time and they just die, you know. It's not like because that well, the little kid one was pretty easy. Little kid, either (laughs) he was kind of he kind of got washed. I'll give you that one. So, Uh, out of the five, easier to kill, but I mean, every five demon can't be like each one of them couldn't be this, this, you know, crazy high diff, you know, mad difficult fight. Yeah, I'd say the special, all the special demons were tough, obviously, but the the regular demons seemed like they were pretty easy pickings. It definitely uh, became that point. Even in Goldie Pond, the the wild demons were like easy pickings after a while. Um, but yeah, the beginning, I'd say nine or ten. Ten is perfect. You don't like to give ten, so you're the you're the deciding for the beginning of how I started Promised Neverland. It did a very good job. The right before Goldie Pond or including. Well, in terms of the beginning of the plot, it's really just for, like, how it started the story. And that's more so the first arc, yeah. It's more lead the first arc. I think, honestly, the first arc was cool. I, I mean, it wasn't my cup of tea or like that. I'd probably give it a 7, personally. Really? really? I think the anime did it better, honestly. See, it's funny you say that, because I actually think the manga <laughs> did it better. Because you get more um, you get more scenes with Ray in, 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 in the manga. Whereas, like, in the anime, it feels like, I mean, obviously music and voice acting and, like, you know, the way that they shoot scenes, like, really lend itself well to the anime. But, like, the anime typically does cut out a little bit of stuff. So there's, like, little moments with Ray in the manga that kind of, like, would help you better predict, like, who he was and what he was going to do a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Which I kind of enjoyed. I'm not saying the anime, or the anime, well, no, the anime did be, it became trash. But, like, I'm not saying that that first season was bad or nothing, but I, I really enjoyed the manga after the first season. I mean, that's fair to say. Um, I think the general assumption, though, when it came to The Promised Neverland, especially the first episode, that it became, like, mainstream purely because of the first arc. Um, because of how unique it was. It was a very unique story yeah, okay. that they're trying to build very, up. Yeah, the concept is very, you know, I don't, I don't know much of anybody who's doing anything like that or has done anything that different. Yeah, the that's why the the first arc was very interesting. Even the first arc compared to the later arcs, it definitely, especially since it was in an enclosed space and it was mind games against Isabella, it wasn't really fighting. It's like who can outsmart who it was very interesting. Um, overall, I'd say I'll I'll give it a nine. But in terms of the uniqueness of the plot, I, I gave it a seven. Although it was very unique in terms of like the kids trying to survive. Ultimately, it was like an apocalyptic survival story. Is like kind of how it's set up, although you know with the kids and the demons, there are certain aspects of it that was 
very uh, that makes it a little bit more special. So I thought it was good. I thought it was a good, unique plot. That's why I kind of went with seven, maybe eight. Is where I'm with. See now, as far as far as the plot, I really enjoyed the overall premise, and even I know like we have our disagreements about the execution. I really enjoyed it. Like I enjoyed how it was. It didn't overload me with information and lots of like, you know, blocks and blocks and blocks of exposition and all that. I think the plot was great. The plot was really good. Okay. Okay. Better plot. All right. The uniqueness. I'll I'll, I'll I'll compromise it here. It definitely has some unique elements to it, so I'll give it that. Um, the pacing. I think the the well, we talked about it. Final arc, I think it was rushed, and the first two arcs were done really well. So that's really the differentiating factor. The, how it ended it seemed like it was kind of going by very quickly, and the first two was kind of steadily pacing itself at a very consistent rate, which I appreciated. Uh, with the first one being how it was, and the second one being sped up a little bit because it was more action oriented. So. I would say I gave it a seven for pacing. Yeah, I, I I also agree. I do think it was rushed in the end. It's kind of annoying because like it was it was set up to be like really 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 amazing, but it being rushed in the end hurt it so so much. It made it messed up so much. So I mean, I'd probably give it like as far as pacing goes, like a Like a six and a half, to be honest. I like, I like the fact that it didn't take a long time. I want to give it a seven, but I re- the ending pacing really made me mad. Because okay, like there were things that happened in the ending that weren't like, you know, we have our disagreements, but there were things in the ending that I also didn't like, despite me defending it. Like I said at the beginning of this live. <laughs> oh, Kino showed up. He said, what's up? He watches the anime. Um, okay, we'll go. I'll, I'll stick with seven. I'll stick with seven. We're close enough. Close enough. All right. <laughs> See, now this is really like the making sure the story kind of consistent all the way through, leaving any glaring plot holes. Make sure the story flows relatively similarly. Or it doesn't have to be similar, but um, there's no inherent discrepancies on the writing of the story. Kind of like Black Clover in the beginning seems like very different from how it is after the time skip. It seems like there's a little some weird kind of like shift in tone and storytelling. Um, so consistency is a big thing. I'll, I'll let you go first. What do you think about Promise Neverland in terms of consistency? I would say in terms of like consistency, I don't think that it really like breaks any of its own rules or like goes against any of the themes that it has established. I don't think it, it ever at any point is like betraying itself. So I think it actually is an overall pretty consistent story. Despite, there, like I said, there are small things I had issues with regarding Levis or whatever and then him coming back and then like the nature of him coming back and all of that but like overall I feel like it's really pretty consistent so I'd give it terms of I think like that's pretty you know pretty consistent story okay now for me personally um I think it's decently consistent but I do think it, it really ultimately comes back to the point where the first two arts and the latter arc, final arc, it just seems like um like its place on what Emma and everybody was doing. The world is very dangerous. There are mind games against Isabella. Mind game against Sister Crone. Escaping. Norman is gone. Uh, we Phil has to stay. 
Ray is trying to kill himself. And then we're here. We got to survive on our own. We met some good demons. And then uh, there's a whole... We found a bunker. There's a human. Goldie Pond. We got to fight demons now. We got to change the whole tone of how we're doing things. So like, like danger on every step. Even though Emma is being very idealistic. Everything seemed like it was crazy. And they were just solving every problem. Um, but it seemed felt natural to a certain extent. But I did feel later on, it kind of seemed like everything was going Emma's way, which kind of shifted uh, in terms of tone for me, for the story. Uh, there were certain, like, it, it was tough because it, it was, because it was paced faster and everything were kind of happening. Maybe that's why I kind of felt that way, because everything was a little quicker, like everything was kind of getting resolved, you know. Uh, they found the found God. They defeated the Queen Norman. Um, they talked to Norman. Found Norman again. Found this place. So because of that, I give it a six. So I, I mean, inherently, just one point difference, but I'll give it a six overall. Six overall. It feels so consistent, though. I don't understand. Like it, it doesn't really have any moments where you're like, man, that doesn't make any sense. Like, or man, this character wouldn't do that, or or for this character doesn't make any sense that they should do that. Outside of some of the stuff, like I said, with Levis, so that's like my own crap. I just don't know, like, what, what it is. Well, what I'm saying is really the the feel that it kind of, at first it seemed like a story where everything can go wrong, anybody could die. It's a very turbulent situation to, like, oh, everything, even though they're still here, it's like everything is just going right, everything is working out. Norman has a plan, Emma has a plan, everybody's surviving, and it's just, it just felt very different at a certain point, where, so that's kind of where my six comes from. But I guess First two arcs are good. Even what, uh, the what's gonna call it, died too, though. Who? Yeah, Hugo and Lucas. I mean... I guess, but it's like, they're adults. It's like, the only kid that died was, was Connie, like, the entire time. No kids really died on it. Exactly. The kid that was born. No exactly. Kid. None of Emma's family died. None of them. Just a show. Chainsaw Man, So is Attack of Titan. I mean... When you set yourself up as, like, a, th uh, a series that's, like, very dangerous and anybody could die at any moment, like, that's... I mean, I have to be consistent with how you set your up your sword. But when the only person that died was, like, this girl very, very early into the series... Yeah, and it's, like, a demon world where there's huge demons that are really stronger than humans that even Isabella's afraid of. You can die at any moment. And nobody did. There's some adults. I don't think it ever set itself up to be that kind of story, though. I disagree. Because it was like, they were in an apocalyptic setting. Apocalyptic. Not, it's not an apocalypse, so I think you get what I'm saying. It's like, yeah, could, yeah it's like, like a, a dystopian future-esque setting. But like, it, it isn't like Attack on Titan, where Attack on Titan showed numerous times in the beginning that anybody can die. Like, that was very established once they started fighting against Titan. That anybody can die. But in Goldie Pond, once they started fighting against demons and no one was really dying, I feel like that really set the tone that, okay, people really aren't about to die. Like well, some people were actually still dying. Like, okay, there were two random kids that died in the bunker. Emma <laughs> didn't care about 
<laughs> Yuko and Lucas died, obviously, but they're adults. There are actually people in Goldie Pond that also died, but they weren't part of Emma's family, so she didn't care. And that one kid she did save, both his siblings actually died, which is actually one of the more, like, impressive scenes, because it's like, oh yeah, people actually can die, even though they weren't relevant to Emma's family, inherently, so it's like, I guess so, you know? So, it actually had a few people die in Goldie Pond, a few kids. It's just like, they weren't a pair, they weren't part of Emma's family, so obviously, but, you know, they a little bit. Later on, they didn't do it at all, but they did a little bit, you know? I was never really worried about anybody, like, getting took out all like I did think Ray might die, just because, like, once they had stopped using him, I thought he was like, ooh, he might die since they're not using him anymore. It felt like he had, like, got, they got all their usefulness out of him, but he never did. And then they did two fake-out deaths with Norman. They did. I thought Norman was going to die, too, not, not going to lie, with this whole, like, like, headaches or, you know, seizures and all that. I thought he was going to die a little bit. But... Even his, I don't think they died either. I don't remember them dying. So it's like, nobody, literally nobody died Goldie Pond arc, actually. Oh, that's actually crazy. I didn't even think about that. Like, nobody died, actually. That's crazy. Uh, I really think, did nobody really die? Nobody important really die after that? Nobody at all died. Like, not even some random set sidekick. I mean, that's because all, all the sidekicks at that point that were still alive were, like, you know, Emma's family. So it was, like... True, and then, like, Emma has to get her way so she can't have her family die. So it's like, okay. But not even any like random kids that were at that 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 area. I don't think any of them died either. None of um Norman's people died. I I, not, I don't uh, think so. I don't think any of them died because they had the antidote. So I was like, it doesn't make sense for them to die. None of them died in like the fight, like in the cross. No, no, all of them survived. I think one person got their arm bit, like e eaten by the queen. It was like the black-haired guy. But I've seen. Yeah. Also, I mean, even the scene where, like, Peter captured another group, and then they, they, Peter got, Peter's so stupid, actually, now I remember that scene's like, getting out, like, Jesus Christ, bro. Even, like, even letting Isabella live and having her betray you is like, like, uh, what? Yeah, it's a little shit. It's like, oh my gosh, Peter, you're fucking, I don't know how you outsmarted William, honestly, don't understand. Um, okay, with that said, all right, I'll, I'll stick with the six. Ending of plot. I'm curious what your rating would be. The ending? Yeah. The ending, unfortunately, probably gets like... I'm going to give it a five. I give a five, too. I five. There we go, Quad. There we go. We're on the same page. I wanted to say four, but I'm going to give it a five. Hmm. Only reason I wanted to say four is just because there was a lot of stuff that kind of just like happened. It like I don't have any problems with stuff afterwards. I know you have some issues with that. What stuff happened, you know, with Emma losing her memories and then getting them back. I know you have a problem with that. I oh yeah, that's so stupid. My issues are with like the wrapping up and the conclusion of like the whole demon stuff. It's like I don't even have a problem with the stuff with like Peter actually. <laughs> but just the, the demon stuff. Is weird. Yeah, the demon stuff was weird. Um, 100%. And then, I mean, I, I 100% have a problem. They made a promise, and that promise had no value at all. She got everything she wanted. They got her family back. I'm like, oh, Jesus. Like, I mean, to me, though, 
that demon felt like it really like went after people's selfishness. But so my own head cannon, because I do think it was kind of left more ambiguous on purpose. I think it kind of took a little like it did do what emo like it did do what it what it said it was gonna do. Like okay, I'm gonna do all this, but you're gonna lose your memories. But I think it was kind of like like almost like a monkey's paw, but not in like a bad way. Where it's like okay, I technically did do this thing, but I never said you weren't that you couldn't like somehow get them back. I mean, if you're going with your head cannon, then I guess, but you, you're making the god too much more, like, nice. I don't I guess. think god was evil or bad or anything. I it mean, should be neutral. Uh, yeah. It doesn't seem neutral, if that if that was the case. Like, giving Emma's... Like, you made the Ratchet family and the demons, like, life, like, tough. And then Emma, he literally didn't do anything. I mean, that's because their, 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 their goals and what they wanted was, well, they were both selfish. Well, Julius wanted to save the human race. He did. Demons needed eat, needed to eat humans to survive. Emma wanted to save her family. She was doing something selfish, too. She is, but she was willing to sacrifice herself, whereas I don't really think the, the demons weren't really willing to sacrifice anything of their own, and the humans just sacrificed it in another group, whereas Emma was the only person out of those three groups who was willing to sacrifice her, her own individual self. Oh, yeah. No. I don't want to dive into that. I think, I, regardless, I will say this: like they also found her extremely quickly. Like, like six months or something. Yeah, I was like, they have the entire planet Earth, and they found her in six months. Like, what? I mean, to be fair, with the internet and technology, and they had a whole foundation assisting them, they should have found her pretty fast. They had no idea she was there. They're just exploring areas, and then they came across. Oh, oh yeah, another like there's a scene where Ray heard Emma's voice, and that's how he went to her. I mean, you know, it's, it's still a fantasy story. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like I don't know what you want. It's not fantasy. I remember another scene where Emma had a dream that Hugo was talking to her, and then he knew, and then she knew he died. It's one, bro, it's like they just have these random epiphanies. It's a fantasy, like, can't can't hold that again. Is it fantasy without magic? Is it? fantasy elements. Sci-fi sci fantasy? I don't even know what this would be. Honest with you. Me neither. All right, plot get to seven after I did the averages. Averages. Um. Okay. What do you think is the overall theme? I said the overall theme is all life is equal. What do I say? I thought it was... It's really hard to figure out what the theme of the story is, honestly. It is. Where there's a will, there's a way. The only reason why I say it's all life is equal, and I'll let you explain your, your reasoning, because I, I see where you're coming from, is because when Emma was um, talking about her plans, I think, to Peter, as well as to Norman and Ray, one of the big, like, big reasonings is that she thinks that Demons are very similar to humans. No, demons are like humans, that they hunt to survive just like humans, so they don't deserve to die because they're doing what's natural in life. And another thing that kind of touches upon that is the fact that they do that one ritual where they pray to the gods and all life is like sacred or created by God, so they, they do those rituals where they flower into the to the kill. So it's like, I mean, that would make sense because, I mean, that's, why, that's kind of the biggest reason why... Emma doesn't want to kill the demons even uh, because she sees them as equals to humans and that all life deserves to live for the most part. 
Um, idealistic, sure, but I think that's kind of poor. So that's that's where I'm coming from with that. I mean, I I I don't think that that's wrong in any way. Like, I think two things can be true at the same time. I could definitely see that as being a theme to Promise Neverland. I mean, the only reason I thought it was where, where there's a will, there's a way, is because like that's like the reoccurring thing that pops up also with Emma is that she's constantly faced with choices on like, okay, you can either do choice A or choice B, but there's pros and cons to both, and she always consistently goes with some third unknown choice because constantly there's choices that Norman and Ray would, would pose to her or even Hugo and Ray. Like, she's constantly faced with crossroads, but she always finds her own way to go about things. Okay, fair enough. What would you give, like, the rating for it? I mean, because the themes only, honestly, only really apply. I think the all life is equal is good because it encompasses the entire universe. But overall, all of it kind of just centered around Emma's, like, idealistic picture. I mean, yeah, the, the, the actual story itself is really, like, hyper-focused on Emma, while, while everything else is kind of, like, background to her, which I'm not really familiar with. Like, it's not like, say, One Piece, where there's lots of different things going on independent of Luffy at any point in, in like, time. And even same thing. I mean, I guess... I'm trying to think of another, another show that's kind of like this one, where it's, like, really all about Emma. Um, that's the, what? Clover is kind of really all about us. I don't really think there's a lot going on. But there. not nearly to the same extent. Yeah, there'll be stuff going on, but without us, it really doesn't matter. I don't know. I don't know about that one. Because Emma's purely, like, the storm. Pure, like, in every aspect. Because her nature, her personality, her idealistic nature is purely the storm. Um, so it's like, yeah. It's tough. It's tough. Uh, I gave the theme a six. Because, like, for the most part, it's definitely present. But the thing about The Promised Neverland is, like, it honestly, it was. Re- I was kind of like trying to read and like, what is the theme? It was really hard for me to really figure it out. And there's only a few times where it really like seems like it's emphasized, but for the most part, never seemed like there's a coherent theme that ties everything together. I mean, if you're going with with the uh, theme that that you chose, I could see where you would say that. But I think if you're going with the one that I picked, then it, it's kind of prevalent throughout the entire series from the beginning to end. You think that encompasses the Promised Neverland better, where for the theme that you said? For me, partly, yeah, because it's literally like that. That was, you know, really important during the like that was what the beginning of them escaping from Gracefield was all centered on. Was Emma creating her own way for everybody to escape without anybody having to be left behind or die. So like that, and then throughout uh, that, making it to the, the shelter, being in the forest, Goldie Pond, every time, every arc or minor um or every like conflict it was always some third option that emma created on her own due to her being really idealistic and not deal with you know having the sacrifice here uh someone said something someone said i feel like stories in general have multiple themes and people will draw different themes depending on how they experience and view the story it might be easier to discuss a thematic topic for scoring purposes now I disagree with this notion because I think. What did he say? 
Well, they said, I feel like stories in general have multiple themes, and people will draw a different theme for different theme depending on how they experience and view the story it might be easier to discuss a thematic topic for scoring purposes now the reason why i don't get, agree with the aspect of multiple themes and different perspectives of themes is because i think most stories are written with a center theme in mind like inherently so like attack attack is the perfect example one piece is the perfect example in terms of like freedom aspect uh, even Magi with Destiny. If you really like, if you read Magi, Destiny was a huge part of how the story was set up. Having a center theme really helps you frame your story. So there are different themes in the story, but having a center theme is very important in framing the story itself. It's like, I I agree with you, but I disagree at the same time because at the end of the day, like stories are still like artistic expression. So it's like everyone's individual, it like. Er- like, everybody's going to uh, just see something different when you're looking at multiple themes. So I'm not, I'm not saying that there aren't stories that do have a central theme, and I think those stories are made with that central theme in mind, but I kind of don't think Promise Neverland was made with, like, one particular central theme in mind, as opposed to, say, Attack on Titan or One Piece that both have a central theme of freedom in mind. But at the same time, if there was somebody, you know, reading, like, since everybody's different, somebody reading the, uh, the, uh, the, the story may pull something else from it. And also, to help out, or, or to credit One Piece and Attack on Titan, they also bring that up a lot. Like, like, the, the, like people, characters desiring freedom and wanting to be free is overtly said, like, multiple times. So it, it's, it's kind of way easier to pick up on it. Whereas Promise Neverland, it's not really like there's one reoccurring thing being said over and over again. People will latch on. My my thing about that is I do think that is a harder way to write a, a, a coherent story because uh, the purpose of a central theme is is give it gives your story a direction beyond the simple narrative like the simple narrative of Promised Neverland is freeing everybody of uh, freeing everybody from this like dystopian world. Right now that there's a very simple way to write that story but if you have a theme attached to it it makes the story way more dynamic and relatable in my opinion more so than a simple a b and c story so i think a central theme i mean you could say that you don't need one for to an extent but every like successful story that i can think of has I mean, I'm not going to sit up here and act like successful stories don't typically have one. But I, I enjoy stories that don't have a central theme because it kind of leads... Is there another one you could think of? That doesn't have a central theme? Yeah. Cowboy Bebop doesn't have a central theme. I would have to think about that because Spike, his his journey is very interesting. I, mean, I would have to think about that. The thing that Spike, Jet, and Faye all get out of their journey are it's very different. And those are the three. But Jet isn't Spike, a lot of it related to their past, though? Uh, yes and no, but the things they get out of their past are kind of different. Faye kind of learns to move past her past. Jet kind of, like, you know, makes amends with his past, and Spike kind of can't escape his past. So they're all very different themes from what you would be trying to go off of. Well, you could tie that together in terms of, like, the importance of uh, your past and the resolution of your past as well. Because at the end of the day, because Spike didn't get past it, he died. Well, we don't know if he died or not. Oh, really? Really? It's no way, Claude. He dies or not? He might be alive. Oh my god. 
He might until further until further notice. He might be alive. Yeah, I'm not buying that one. Even to go past each character's battles with their past, there's still the individual stories of the characters interacting with whatever the characters in the episode were that has their own individual small themes within the episode itself. That kind of oh, I agree with that there's a lot of small themes, yeah. So it's like it's it would be hard to pin down a singular central theme for a Cowboy Bebop. It's kind of yeah. like, and that's, and I, I could try to think of another one, but I kind of, I don't even. Bleach have a central theme? I don't know if Bleach has one central theme. Well, people say his central theme is related to the fact that he couldn't protect his mother, and the essence of him protecting is kind of why he is how he is moving forward. That's why he saved Rukia. That's why he saved Orihime. You know? So, that's what people say the Bleach central theme is. He's like, protect me? Yep. Protect Basically. Care about? Yes. Yeah. Especially since he lost his mother. That's what you said. I say, but yeah, I enjoy stories that don't have a hard central theme just because it kind of leaves like more things up into interpretation so people can kind of get out of the story what they want to get out of it or what they naturally gravitate towards mm. i'll give i'll give based on your theme and maybe my theme i'll give it i'll give it a seven like i think providing something interesting enough in terms of the theme for people to really like get something from i I really don't like people who have, like, stubborn, idealistic natures, which is why I don't like people like Natsu, for example. And I don't really... Luffy is interesting. Or Aaron, for that matter. Like, what? Like, what? We'll talk, like, we can talk about Aaron. He not stubborn. We can talk about Aaron. We can talk about Aaron. I, just, I disagree with Aaron being part of that, that camp. But I would say Luffy... I always I like Luffy, but because he's entertaining, I don't like him because <laughs> I never thought they're funny. Did they get a pass? Yes, because uh, people say I don't agree with the notion that Luffy is some deep character, well written character. I've never agreed with that that sentiment. Um, but I think I think Luffy's entertaining for so that's why he gets a pass. That's why. Hundred percent. Luffy being deep, I think he's deeper than like Goku. I think people try to compare him to Goku. I think he's way deeper than Goku. But I don't think he's I agree like, to that. I don't think he's like some super multi-layer faceted character. Say like, like. I think Naruto's better than Luffy, and I'll say about it as a protagonist, a written protagonist. No, I don't think so. I disagree. I, I think Naruto's better written than Luffy. I think Luffy's impact may be lower. I think Luffy, in terms of how he and his the, the the thematic the themes in relation to Luffy is stronger than when it comes to One Piece than Naruto it is to Naruto, but I think in terms of like development all that stuff, like, I get Naruto for sure. We can have a discussion. One One Piece later. We'll that's a whole. We'll that, you could, yeah, that could be a whole stream, honestly. Thank you. Yeah, I'm just, I I agree, I agree. Um, character of the big three, that, that'd be a good one. That'd be a good one. Mathematically speaking, for sure. Each go last? Question mark. <clears throat> All right, let's talk about. Let's talk about. Yeah, let's talk. Each goes low key ahead of both of them for real, for real. That's tough. Oh. Okay, so I'll go with seven for theme. I'll be generous. I'm generous. And for art, I went with seven. I thought it was good. Anytime art is good and not crazy, I just give it seven. I think, I think, um, I think you give Seven Billy Sims like a six or something. I think the comic draws way better than this, but 
anyway. Um, uh, maybe eight or seven. I don't remember what I gave it. Oh, I gave it something high. You gave it something low. You're like, I was just never really impressed with anything I've seen on panel. That's like more or less what you're saying. But <laughs> I think those demon designs can be really dope. Those. I I, I mean, maybe if I redid it, I would think about it. Maybe I'll give eight and eight. I don't know. I I, I don't know. For the themes, for me, I was also going to give it a 7. I think for the art for Promise Neverland, I was going to give it like a 5. I think the art's really average. There wasn't like any panels that I've seen outside of like, you know, like um, some of the bigger con- confrontations. Because a lot of what made it hype to me was some of the suspense on what's going to happen next in a lot of the moments. But like, the, the art, I never seen like a two-page panel or a two-page panel. I was like, oh my gosh, this looks crazy. It never like really blew me away. You sold me. I'll give it a five. There you go. <laughs> All right. Now, with that said, do you think there's anything in Promise Neverland that's like the S tier, goat tier, written wise in terms of the story? Well, so far, the only thing I, that was close for me, there's two the beginning of the plot and Ray, but I think they both missed the mark. I can give you. Grace Field. I think Grace Field is a really big moment, like, as far as, like, how lots of people took it in. Like, I think you could show that first season to a lot of people that aren't even anime fans, and they would be gravitated to the story. Wow. I think it's one of the better, like, first seasons. Like, you, if you had to, like, watch most Shonen first seasons, I think The Promise Neverland would be close to the top. Yeah, I think for whatever reason, I think it, it just is really, I think it's something that people like to watch, at least as of right now. It has the whole, you know, dark fantasy thriller thing going for it really well in that first arc. But then it kind of shifts a little bit after that. Yeah, it's just what it provided was very unique for a series, considering, like, all three of the characters were present, and all of them were very unique and different with Ray, Norman, and Emma. And Isabella, as an antagonist for the first arc alone, was excellent, as she seemed to be able to outsmart them. And how they beat Isabella at the end of the day with Ray, with Norman, with losing Norman, and Ray and Emma never talking to each other. And then Ray, uh, the re- revelation on who Ray is, and like, like it did so many things well for a few season to encapsulate them. Yes. It did. It really sucked they had to fumble season two, like, so hard. It was very unfortunate. Tough, but they realize, hey, I mean, we gotta do something because it's kind of fumble anyway. So it's like, it's oh, that we're just gonna sucks. skip Goldie Pond altogether. I was like, you're gonna they skip Goldie Pond for real? Yeah, yeah. I had no idea. For the second season, they they go through through the forest with Sonju and um the one chick I always forget her name, and they make it to the bunker. And right when they make it to the bunker is when the uh is when the uh attack happens, and like those guys are after them immediately. So weird. How they do you skip. tell a story without going to Golden Fire? It's like you skip so much important stuff. Like they never learned how to fight properly. You skip Lucas and Hugo, who are huge reasons why Emma and Ray are the way that they are, just in general. Like you skip the fact that they found all of William Minerva's information. Like that is really the crux of how they solve and find God in the first place. They skipped it. They they skipped it all. And so weird. They did all that to the ending. They they ended the whole thing in season two. It was horrible. Train wrecks. They had no confidence in the rest of the series. They just rushed it to death. Like I just don't know why they did that. 
I mean, I for like the, the thing about Promise Neverland is it does live leave a lot of things up in the air in the final arc. But if you're creating an anime, you can build upon that. That's what Bleach is doing. So it's like, I mean, and, and One Piece does it all the time. They constantly are adding things to the anime. Naruto did it a lot actually too. Like most series that don't rush through things will add a little bit more to it to really flesh it out in the anime. But. Yeah, that's so weird. JJK that's so nice. does it. Chainsaw Man is doing it. They're adding more to these series to flesh them out more. Oh, I do want to bring up that time you mentioned JJK. So one of the things that I was, that's unfortunate for Promise Neverland for me is like it. It never had moments that made me like feel anything, personally, compared to like Fairy Tale or even the JJK movie. Like I felt stuff when I'm reading Promise Neverland. I never felt anything. It's like. I was just, like, reading the story. Only a true intellectual will be able to really appreciate the high moments of such a intellectual narrative. Oh, what, what were those high moments? So, I'm curious. What were those high moments that really, like, changed everything? I'm not for sure someone of your IQ level would quite be able to understand the words that I'm going to say to you. There is no moment in Promise Neverland that touches Utah's friends getting beaten up by uh, I got Gecko. four words for you, sir. Let me hear it. Goldie Pond was peaking. What moment? I need a moment. Bro, the whole thing. Just like the, what moment? the introduction of the arc with this whole, there's this pond, or there's this place, I guess, say, where kids are just hunted by these poachers, when, like... Emma and Ray are trying to follow um, Hugo, and he basically lets her get caught on purpose, but then he feels bad, so him and Ray are trying to find her while simultaneously Emma's meeting Lucas and getting information that she wants to save all these kids, because at that moment is when her character starts to expand, and she doesn't just want to save her family, she wants to save all these kids. She wants to save everybody. Yeah, bro, it's on. It gets a little crazy, it starts Crazy, yeah. But what was more emotional? Utah trying to fight in Ghetto after they beat up his friends, or that? Emotional? I think the last fight with her and Lavis and that whole thing, because it really, in the moment, I didn't see how she was going to win, but it made sense, ultimately, how she did using, like, flash grenades, finding out, you know, their eyes grow back slower than everything else in terms of their regeneration. It was pretty hype. It was a very good strategy. I mean, if I have to be fair and compare it to reading it, because, like, obviously a movie's going to look crazy as compared to a manga, but, like, if I have to compare, because I read Chapter Zero before, way before I seen the movie, which, I mean... Even that was hype. It was cool. It was cool. But, like, it's, it was just interesting, considering Promise Neverland would try to set itself up as, like, a thriller where everything can go wrong, in a sense... And then, like, I felt more emotional in reading fairy tale than Archie's like, yeah, like seven people died. I just didn't really care, though. Yeah. <laughs> I felt nothing. <laughs> the hell you those guys died, bro? I felt nothing. But when when Urza let Jalal go and she didn't want to, ah, oh, hard strings right there, bro. Hard strings. Yeah, you know you teared up. Urza, Urza's like, I, I, I want to be with you, but I know I can't, bro. It's tough. It's tough. That's tough. I'll give uh, Promise Neverland the beginning of the plot 10. So that it gets a .25 boost. Any any other, like, written things in the story? Outside of Goldie Pond being peaked, no, I don't got anything else for you. 
I don't know about giving whole arts ten. I don't know if the Goldie Pond's a ten as like a That's just me. I don't know what everybody else be on. That's just me. I mean, you got your favorites. That's nothing wrong with that. I think it's pretty good. It's just, I, I, don't, I don't know. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. It's good art. It was a good art. I mean, for the most part, a lot of it was just like, Emma showed up, they came up with a strategy, and then they fought. It actually happened a lot quicker than I, me- than I remember when I read it. Yeah, so well, if it's Moody fight, it didn't. It, it, it wasn't like super duper long. Yeah, they got into the fight very quickly. It was only like a couple chapters instead of. That's why I kind of like the pacing. It wasn't like super duper slow, but it just got like really fast towards the end. Stuff just started like happening really quickly. Yeah, hundred percent. All right. Um, okay. With that said, there's no nothing else. So let's do some averages, Quan. Math, right? Math. Okay. Will be the final score of Promise Never. The objective analysis, as you said. Zarty's bias sprinkled all over it. Cap, I was completely objective the entire way through. And I'll give the art a 7 to get a bit of boost. See, I'm even a helping Promise Never. Fighting me the entire way, tooth and nail. I was being honest. You were being biased. I don't know what to tell you. What's this in Quan's objective analysis? <laughs> that's why. That's what I'm saying. I was being honest, and you were being biased, and that's how things were. Be. I don't think I've ever been biased in my entire life. Plus point two five. Promise Neverland gets a final score. That's interesting. <laughs> that is interesting. What? They got the exact same score, seven other cents. Honestly, though, for real, for real, in terms of series quality and marketability, I would, I wouldn't say that Promise Neverland is too drastically higher than seven other cents. I think, I think, I think commercially, it's a bit more popular. In terms of popularity, I'd say seven other. Seven other cents has to be more popular. I think Promise Neverland sold better, I thought, though. In terms of manga, you may be alright, but in terms of general mainstream, like, knowledge, Deal. I'd probably say seven. Some one's a battle series and one isn't. Like, battle series. Yeah. I mean, yeah. We'll get a little more juice. True. Also, um... Okay. So, when it comes down to it, you know, the thing about it, is Promise Neverland has a lot of attributes that people can definitely like. Like, things that you talked about. Promise Neverland sold slightly better. It sold uh, 41 million. And 7 Daily Sands is currently sold at 37 million. Oh, so it's not that big, far behind. Plus, it still has its sequel. Yeah. It's true. Alright. Alright. Um, Alright. It was late. Oh, they both came okay. out. That's crazy. They both came out the same year. Yeah. Okay. That's crazy. Oh man, when I do my Attack on Titan analysis, I know it'll be very interesting. One thing I want to make sure to do, or I do, is make sure that the analysis is like consistent for every series, like so that there's not like inherent problems. Like for the setting, I'm like arguably because like Promise Neverland. Because I want to be fair to every series. 
I think the characters and plot is pretty consistent. Like, there's really no changing from series to series. It's either you have good characters or and have a good plot or don't. There are certain times where the setting is more valuable in other series than other. Like, for Promise Neverland, it's not as valuable. And Death Note, it's not as valuable compared to something like One Piece. But should I... The, the question, really, is... Does that mean that I just don't include it? Or does that mean that it gets a detriment for it not having that element? What are you talking about? Wait, what? Like, there's certain series that have, like, an actual setting in terms of the world. Right, right. Versus other series, like, that that don't. Like, Death Note, for example. Or, like, Demon Slayer. Uh, Japan. Yeah, but even, like, in... In in uh, Demon Slayer, like the, the, when it comes to setting, that's like how the world is made. So that's like, does it have a power system? Does it have well lore? How, like you need some type of lore and history, like in any series, you need some type. Geography is it? Does it have a geography? So I, I mean, think the you, best. If you separate them but still do an average, it won't necessarily hurt them. I don't think. I think the best way to put it is, like, only judge what it includes. And I think Promise Neverland doesn't include a geography, so I don't have to worry about that. It doesn't really have... It doesn't have a power system at all, so I'm not going to rate that. But it does have lore and history, so I have to... That's what I'm reading. I think that's how I'll do it. Yeah, because what it has. If you take those two out, it doesn't necessarily hurt it if you're just taking an average. Yeah. I mean, it would hurt if I just put, like, zero for both. Oh, yeah, if you put a zero, yeah, but, yeah, I meant just, like, don't even... If if it's nine categories and you take out those two, then it's just divided by seven instead of nine. That'd just be unfair. Well, basically how I do it is that there's subcategories for every main category. The subcategories create the main category number, and then I'll do a final average of all the main categories. That's how I do it. Oh, I see. So you do two sets of that. Exactly. Setting. What did you give uh, the Lord history? I know I gave one of them a six and the other one a seven. Well, I, I consider them the same. I think the Lord history is basically one and the same. Yeah, it's because like it's the lore of the world or the history of the world. It's kind of like the same thing. <laughs> Not really sure. I'll let your final rating of the Lord history di- dictate the rating for the setting. This is all up to you. Go with six and a half. Ha- Alright. Six and a half. You know? Six and a half. I feel like that was good. Alright, so we go seven plus six plus six point five plus seven plus seven. Divided by Plus 0.25. Promise Devlin, final rating after Juan's edition. 6.95. It's better than it was. Which is close to a 7. Those zeros were dragging it down a lot. No, no, I didn't include zeros. But I originally had a 5, and then I let you decide it would be a 6.5. That's how it ended up. But, um, okay. So, with that said, we're going to do the final uh, verbiage, the final monologue of everything here. Uh, Quan, if you don't mind, can you talk about the theme and the plot, which is the same? 
Five. Theme we gave the, a six or a seven. Theme is a seven. I went with your theme. Plot is a seven. Theme is a seven. I'll talk about the character setting and the art slash animation. Nope. All right. So let's start this. Three, two, one. Do you hear an echo? On my end? No, I don't hear anything in my ear set. Let me check. Test. Hold on. Testing. I mean, that just sounds really loud, not really an echo. <laughs> no, I know. I was like, I hear some, like, a slight, a weirdish. Is it on my end? Or am I echoing? You're not echoing. I don't but know. I hear, like, a, me slightly. I don't know what's up with I don't know if it comes across. It's very slight. It's just kind of weird. But it's whatever. All right. We are back here with our objective analysis of the Promised Neverland series that has controversy with the anime rel- flopping, but the manga having a relatively strong fan base. It's a very interesting series with very mixed opinions in general, I would say, about a lot of people liking it, a lot of people not liking it for the most part. But I had to reread the series and I do an objective analysis, and we are here with my boy, Quan Credible. So, uh, we're going to start with the characters. Now, the characters in Promise Neverland is very interesting when you really dive into it. For the most part, it really centers around three characters. Emma, Ray, and Norman. Emma being the center character, the most important protagonist, and the one that really affects the plot the most. Now, Ray and Norman are also very interesting characters, but they have moments to be one of like the better characters that are written, period, in manga, but fall slightly considering that they weren't elaborated enough. Ray around the end of the series, and Norman in general in terms of when he left and when he came back in terms of all the things he did. A lot of potential for very intelligent characters. In general, the the villains that really stood out were Duke and Isabella, but uh, they're pretty much one arc villains that had moments but could have done more. And the characters in general, even the main antagonist, had elements to really provide much more characterization, but they had very little presence, especially in comparison to our three characters and what they provided for the story. So overall, the characters got a six in terms of their rating, and I'll let you, I'll let Quan go ahead and talk about the plot. So as far as the plot goes, one of the biggest strengths for Promise Neverland was how unique it actually was. Now granted, a lot of stories are very unique because there aren't too many stories that share a ton of, ton of similarities, but Promise Neverland, when it did come out, it was like completely different, unlike, a th- unlike anything a lot of people had ever seen, and it was so much so popular that it got a lot of people into it, despite not even necessarily being anime or manga fans. Um, as for me personally, I do think that the plot of the manga does very well in terms of like adding a lot of things that the anime didn't, and we do know how the anime did fumble season two as well as the ending of the series as a whole, but we're not going to hold that against the series in itself because that would be very unfair. But overall, we did decide to give the plot a seven just because a lot of it's uniqueness and how it was executed. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Next, moving on to the setting of The Promised Neverland. Now, the setting is basically how the world was uh, composed. Now, when I'm doing the setting moving forward, I want to make sure that I'm only talking about things that were included. So I don't want to talk about the geography or the power system because there was none. That's not the type of series that I promised Neverland was. But we are going to talk about the lore and slash history of the series, how the series world was kind of created behind Promise. Julius making a de- uh, deal with the demons, 
um, the system itself when it was put in place, stuff like that. For the most part, it was done well enough for you to understand where how it was uh, created. Now, whether or not it could have been elaborated on in terms of the finite or intricate details is a question for a different day. But you understood how the world worked and what Emma had to do to destroy the society as it is. So we ended up giving it 6.5. Go for it. Uh, talk about the theme, my guy. So for the theme, obviously with themes being it a story, stories do have lots of different artistical expressions that different people will gravitate towards. So if you got a different theme out of it, that's more or less understandable. But the theme that we ended up seeing out of it is that where there is a will, there is a way. This is pretty prevalent throughout all of the arcs in Promised Neverland. With whenever Emma is faced with a hard choice or a decision in the conflict, she typically will have one choice and another choice, but she typically doesn't like either one, so she finds her own way to get everything she wants at the end of the day. Never really given up. Obviously, that is a common theme in a lot of shonens, but I do think that Promised Neverland really does encapsulate it very, very well. So we ended up giving the theme a six and a half. Seven. 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 And last but not least is the art. I was very generous here. I like the very simplistic style with the demons getting elaborated to a certain extent. So I decided to go with a 7 for it. Um, as for the overall rating, it actually got a 0.25 boost. As you know, I give a boost for anything that was written that's like an S-tier, GOAT-tier, masterful masterpiece. And for The Promised Neverland, they deserve credit for how they began their story. Season 1, the first arc of Promised Neverland... It's one of the better written starts of a series that you will see. It really encapsulates the audience for what it provides. The thriller, psychological warfare between Emma, Ray, Norman, and Isabella was very well done. It seems like they were constantly on a situation where they could lose and die at any moment. So it really uh, made you very invested in the series. So because of that bonus, the final rating of The Promised Neverland is a six. Point nine five, close to a seven. One of the good series. Five is average, so it's way above average. Promise Neverland's very good series. Like I said, very controversial. I hear a lot of people say it's really good. I hear a lot of people say it's really bad. But for the most part, I think it's rel written relatively well. And the uh, final final points you want to make, Quan? Um, I, I I do understand where a lot of people could have some gripes with um, you know. Like I said, anime being terrible, but that aside, with the ending feeling a little bit rushed, but I think for what is there in the story, I think it is actually handled a lot better than people may remember it being handled. And then maybe a lot of the gripes come from it being weekly, because typically when things are read weekly, it's a lot worse than if you read it all at, uh, at once for some reason. Fair enough, fair enough. With that said, we're going to move on to our next series whenever that uh, comes up. I also will start bringing out series where I'm like reading off a like beginning of a series and try to see if it has potential and that will come in the future that'll come in the future as well so when i'm not doing an objective analysis i'll see if a series has potential and that series next i think will be the Inchinose family's deadly sins so if it has like three to five chapters i'll read it see what it has and tell you whether or not you should check it out so that's all we got for today y'all have a good one take care